0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU.
1: This is the Matt
2: Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. No. On BYU Radio. BYU
1: Radio.
2: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Happy Tuesday to you. You made it another day, my friends. And uh, man, are are we uh, ever ready for you? Locked and loaded. We've got a lot to talk about today. Could your Fit, Fitbit data be used to deny you health insurance? You'd think that they would just be using it to, you know, promote better living, which they do. But once this thing is on your wrist and they can start to prove what you're doing every day, then they can start saying, looks like you sat on the couch today. So, is there
3: Busted. some sort of an incentive for wearing that? Do you get like a break on your you do, insurance? You get a little
4: sometimes some money back. Okay. Some, if you're in a health program. Some offices will supply you with the Fitbit in connection with your insurance. Right? Ah. So, that comes from your work, who's also dealing with your insurance, and they'll look at a And like, then they'll bring
2: not- in nutritionists and they'll bring in all these other health experts to help coach because if they can make the pool a lot healthier, then. Their, their fees go down. And they'll even incentivize. Even at BYU, they'll give you money if you'll go have a health assessment and get in a program. Uh, they've been For some reason, they've been calling me like every day. <laughs> but you've got to have benefits in order to get those incentives. Yes. Hmm. Now, here's the dilemma. But once they get that foot in the door and they can start kind of incentivizing you positively, could they then turn the entire deal on you and start Disincent or not disincentivizing, but charging you more because you're not exercising. And what happens when Fitbit technology takes off and now they can tell what your blood sugar levels are, even if you don't have diabetes, they can tell you're eating a lot of sugar or you have too much fat in your diet. What happens then? We'll talk to an expert on this. This is scary hmm. because I wear either a Fitbit or um, a smartwatch because it makes me look smarter and more fit. Okay. Allegedly. And so I do it for image, but now it can be used against me. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. Have you ever used <laughs> one of those devices in your car?
3: Like we put a progressive little yeah. game cartridge thingy in there and it tracks uh, whether yeah. or not you slam on the brakes no, or. or no, that's crazy. Yeah.
2: Why would you ever Well, give them that?
3: Well, because you, if you drive uh, well, you, you get a discount. How much
4: of a discount? It's
3: probably negligible.
4: Well, it goes it goes down over time because uh, the the one uh, that I was using it it set some benchmarks the first year, and then the next year if you don't meet those benchmarks, then you know get the same discount. Punitive. right? yeah, right. kind of goes back. Right. But they, they're not they're not uh, raising your rates because of the way you're driving. You just don't get a discount.
2: I know, but what's amazing, my insurance company doesn't know what I'm doing right. until I need to file something, and then we yanked them because we're like, this is a joke again. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like giving them that much information. You're essentially on probation. Right. You may as well just have a breathalyzer every time you get in your car.
4: And then the the insurance said, because I was working a morning show and I'd have to get to the office at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving in a hazard time of day. Any time before 5 a.m. was considered a hazard time. And so we were not getting that discount because of my work schedule. Well, and you drive in a hazardous way. I mean, I've seen you drive.
5: Okay.
2: When I passed you the other day. Demolition Derby is a way of life. Your, your head was on your side window yeah, yeah. sleeping. Well, you got to catch the sleep when you get the chance. That's why it's a hazard. So the hazard is anytime we're on the road. Oh, there goes Jeff. Hmm. Well, that Solara sounds nice. Oh, wow. It's burning out. By the way, um, I'd like to thank the police officer, the municipal police officer from a city I won't name, who drove down the middle of I 15 with us today yeah. at 74 miles an hour. Oh, nice. While literally half a mile of cars were stacked up behind yeah. him. No one will pass. Five it. lanes wide because <laughs> no one's going to pass a cop going 74.
4: No, I'd like to thank him. Well, it's good he was going seventy four. Yeah, I've seen him in a seventy go like sixty five just to mess with everyone. It's really fun
2: to see. Um, oh, maybe he was going sixty nine. Is the speed limit seventy? Yeah. yeah, yeah. He was going sixty nine. I normally go seventy four. You got to know that they enjoy that. Oh, he was driving because. And then this guy in a truck, you big truck guy, gets in the outside lane, ready to just fly by. He's just he's like, what is up with all these people? Right. And then right. he
4: just stops right at the front. <laughs> So thank Slam you, on officer. the brakes. Won't name any names. I had a neighbor who would, uh, he was a ma- on the maintenance crew for some of the uh, police cars. And oh. So he'd have to take the car from the station to the maintenance. Yeah, you got to go. Yeah. And he would just jump on the freeway. And he said it was the greatest joy of his life to just watch everyone slam on their brakes the second <laughs> they saw him.
2: So.
4: <laughs> oh, that would be fun for a day.
2: Uh, we're going to get to all this fun, folks. We'll talk Fitbits coming up, plus some other headlines. Some of which, in fact, we've also got to talk about Melania's hand slap to President Trump. People are trying to figure out what that was all about on the red on the red carpet walk. I guess from their airplane hmm.
3: to. Have, haven't you ever played that game, the hand slap game, where you you know you try to move your hands before the other person can turn theirs oh, over no, and yeah, slap I have, yours? I haven't played. Maybe that. Maybe they were playing a little bit of that.
2: Yeah, they should have invited the Netanyahu family involved, let them get involved in that. Uh, Let's get
4: to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Last week, Turkish President Erdogan's armed bodyguards beat up peaceful protest testers outside the Turkish embassy residence in Washington, D.C., apparently at Erdogan's direction. The State Department has since expressed its concern to the Turkish government in the strongest possible terms, and on Thursday called on tur- the Turkish ambassador to meet with the U.S. Undersecretary of State about the incident. Now, Turkey is responding by accusing the United States personnel of aggressively and unprofessional actions against the bodyguards. The Associated Press reports 11 people were injured in the scuffle, including an American police officer and two Secret Service agents. On the other side, Washington police say they arrested two people who live in the D.C. area, Presumably, protesters or pro-Erdogan demonstrators, but Erdogan's uh, traveling secretary or security team enjoys diplomatic immunity, which means none will be held accountable for clearly criminal acts. The video Come of this on. was crazy. They're just grabbing people, punching them, and. Going fight, a lot, but it's fine height. they have diplomatic immunity mm-hmm. another news amid international shortage of critical medicine u.s hospitals are hoarding vile uh, vitals displaying uh, delaying surgeries and turning away patients the new york times reports the medicine in short supply solutions of sodium bicarbonate you know what that is uh soda it's baking soda yeah the simple drug is used in all sorts of treatments from chemotherapies Uh, uh, To those for organ failures, it can help correct the pH, blood, and ease pain of stitches. It is used in open-heart surgery, can help uh, reverse poisonings. It's kept on emergency crash carts. But however basic and life-saving the drug has been in short supply since around February, the country's two suppliers... Pfizer and Amphistar ran low following an issue with one of Pfizer's suppliers. The issue uh, was undisclosed due to confidentiality agreements. Amphistar's supplies took a hit with a spike in demand from the desperate Pfizer company. You know, so the one company failed, the other company felt the hit and couldn't keep up with the, the uh, demand. Both companies told the New York Times they don't know when exactly supplies will be restored. They speculate that no earlier than June or August. Huh. Wow. So if you have any surgeries, uh, I do. Bring bring your own, I guess? Is yeah, bring your the, the same? I don't know. SpaceX billionaire Elon Musk may have his heart set on building a city on Mars, but Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos' uh, space vision looks closer to home. He's gazing at the moon. He goes, I think we should build an, a permanent human settlement on one of the poles of the moon, Bezos wow. said in a question and answer with kids at a Seattle museum of flight. It's time to go back to the moon, but this time we need to stay. You know... I don't know about that. You don't think that? We shouldn't we should go to the moon?
2: Well, I don't mind, I guess, going to the moon. We have a hard time in our own settlements here on Earth. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure we're ready as a, as Earthlings to go start settling the intergalactic areas. It's the moon. Yeah. We're talking Mars. It's, it's I
3: mean, right we, there. Again,
2: we also have trouble getting our own trash. Once
3: you know, they get a movie theater recycling. there.
4: If they get a movie theater, I'm on board. <laughs> All right. And finally, a drone flying around Petco Park during the San Diego Padres-Arizona Diamondbacks game Sunday crashed into the stands. Fox Sports showed the uh, video of the rogue drone moving around the Major League Baseball stadium. It eventually crashed next to a man sitting in a seat located in the upper deck. The game announcers can be heard saying that the drone appeared to be illegally flying in the ballpark. The Padres recently passed a new set of drone flying regulations to improve safety, drone operators who endanger people, or property can face a $1,000 fine in federal or local prosecution. The FAA is investigating. By the way, the Padres beat the Diamondbacks. Wow. Hey, I'm all for that.
2: The drone thing, that's scary. That There's like four blades on those things. It's like a salad shooter. They just relax the rules
4: so that uh, private citizens don't have to register. So looks like know, everybody was okay. Okay. Well, yeah. yeah.
2: Not, so what do you do with a drone that illegally lands is. in your lap? Boom. Take it home? I guess you just want a drone. Yeah. Yeah, I get, but you still need the controller, you know what it's wouldn't you
3: wouldn't you be ecstatic? I mean it's great to catch a baseball at a game, but to catch a drone, yeah, how many other people can say they've done that at a baseball game?
2: Not very many hmm. that guy <laughs> how was the game? Well, great, I lost a finger with the drone thing, but totally worth it. <laughs> I though. got to keep the drone you know it's um it's really a big deal uh. You can't even go to a game anymore because you're afraid. You're either, people are falling off of the the higher levels of the of the concourses That's now. That's happened
4: at Wrigley in Chicago. Yeah. Now, and why they, is that happening?
2: I think it's the beer. Awesomely.
4: I really. I think
2: a lot of people
4: are just fell over a railing
2: a and fell down. I mean, so you can fall. You can get hit with a ball. You can get hit with a bat. You um, you could get spat upon. And now I, a drone. I
3: will say I've never paid so so much attention to a baseball game until I was there sitting in a baseball stadium because I'm terrified. Yeah. If you've got a good enough no, seat, you, watch, you, you don't want to attention. get hit in
2: the head. And, and you know, I, then you wish you
4: brought your mitt because I always, as a kid, would take my mitt to the ball game. And then as an adult, if you bring your mitt, there's some public shaming that goes yeah, on. Yeah, and, and it's like, look so at this guy. Man. What's his deal? He didn't barehand it. He's not a man. That's right. Yeah. I, I, that's why
2: I always like to sit next to a kid with a mitt.
4: Last week, the uh, Washington Wizards and Boston Celtics. There was a fight with fans in the crowd. Yeah, they that just got went crazy. Nuts. So it's just, yeah.
2: The uh, Warriors last night swept the Spurs, so now they can go rest. LeBron James had a little tiff with, uh, with one of his fans. I mean, it's a. This is this is getting crazy. Yeah. This is going to be a big, a big head-to-head. Cavaliers. Let's say they win.
4: Against the Warriors. It better be the Cavaliers. It better be. There'll be some pushback. If it's Boston, it'll just be kind of a quick and boring and yeah. moving on. So, <clears throat> Did you hear about this hip-hop Harvard Ivy League student? I did.
2: He did his senior uh, project, I guess, was a rap. And I'm like, so what's the big deal there? Jeff, for his senior project, did a rap. And I'd like to hear a little bit of it right now, Jeff. <laughs> do you have a Do, my, have a, do you, have a rap you mean you could, in college? Do you have some words you could lay down for, for us? For my some...
3: senior project, I made – you know how you're supposed to make those senior demo reels and then you send them out to all the TV stations? Yeah, yeah. You made a reel. I didn't even bother doing that. Wow. How, so did you get a job or how would you – No, I wasn't interested in having what? a TV news job.
2: So oh, wow. I didn't even bother. Didn't do it? Mm. Wow. It's kind of selfish. I mean, don't you think you should share your joy, share your gifts?
3: Well, I'm I'm flattered that I mean, do you think that way.
2: I'm glad you shared them with us. Kelly Clarkson is Ten in, years later. Yeah. <laughs> ten years later. Kelly Clarkson is in a little bit of trouble. What'd she do? Apparently, um she's got a curse. The Clarkson curse that everybody that sings with her hmm. ends up having problems. Have you heard about this? No. So anyway, she then went and sang the Nashville Predators are one game away from advancing to the Stanley Cup finals, and I guess apparently she went and sang the national anthem, and then they lost. So it's her fault. Apparently. That's how it works. After she sang the anthem last week, the Predators lost their first home playoff game after winning six in a row. Was it a coincidence, or was it the Kelly Clarkson curse? Hmm.
4: Many are saying it's the curse. People who don't like Kelly Clarkson. Yeah. I love her songs. She's going to The Voice. Why? Be- I don't know. Because they're <laughs> reviving American Idol on ABC. Okay. And so people are like, oh, so which? why wouldn't she go there? Well, because she's going go go to go work for The Voice. Yeah. I so like her music a lot. These are things
2: that don't exactly matter. These are the things, interestingly, that um, do matter to a few people. <clears throat> and, I mean, it matters to the Predators. <laughs>
4: Does it? But um, maybe, maybe it was a lack of defense. Maybe that usually... See? Yeah. yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kelly Clarkson!
4: See? There <laughs> so you somebody's go. Somebody's really mad about Kelly.
2: You got to love her music. You know, she's, she's, she kind of screams, and and yet it's beautiful. So, oh, it's so good. Folks, up next, we're going to be talking Fitbits. Everybody, you know, you're starting to get them, you need them, then you can count your steps, but eventually, will people be counting all this information against you when it comes to your health insurance Premiums. Stick with us. Interesting uh, insight up next. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. You know, our producer, uh, Palakiko. He, uh, little Kiko, we call him little Kiko, uh, just got a new Fitbit and, um, yeah, he wears it around and he's kind of bragging about how many steps he's taking every day. And we all joke about it. We all wear, we all have some device that we use to track our health. But, um, you know, the cool thing about his Fitbit is it tracks resting heart rate, how many calories he's burning, obviously, how many, even the quality of his sleep, but should his Fitbit data be used to uh, deny him health care insurance? And could that day ever come? I mean, it seems like right now we use this data to improve our health, not necessarily prevent people from getting healthcare or, you know, jacking up their prices. So here to speak with us today is Dr. Andy Boyd. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical and Health Information Sciences at the University of Illinois in, at Chicago. And uh, he's, he's got, I think, a lot of awesome insight to help us with this discussion. Dr. Boyd, thank you for your time today
0: having me on the show.
2: This is great um topic. I think there's such a rage and so so much excitement about these these devices to help us gather the information, but one of the points you're making in this article, could your Fitbit data be used to deny you health insurance is some of the data may eventually be used against you.
0: Yes, that is correct. First of all, let me state under the current law as passed in the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, pre-existing conditions or using your illnesses to have you pay more insurance or not have you pay, be eligible for insurance is illegal. However, the Republicans have tried to repeal the act several dozen times, and now we have a Republican president. And even with the Republican plan, there was a large discussion about Can the insurance companies use pre-existing conditions, your health status, to adjust your insurance rate? Oh, boy. And the question is, if they're allowed to do that, what can they use? Seven years ago, we didn't have Fitbit data. We didn't have all of this wonderful tracking of how well you sleep, how many steps you take. All of this technology was much more expensive. It wasn't widespread consumer. And so if the pre-existing condition clause is passed uh, or is repealed, is this data going to be used by your insurance company? I mean, well, it would be very tempting at the oh, low cost.
2: No, absolutely. Well, and what scares me is who's pushing more and more data collection aren't even necessarily the insurance companies, it doesn't sound like, but just data companies like Qualcomm.
0: Qualcomm is interested. They have been interested for a number of years. The data itself and how we use the data is one of the things, as a public, we need to decide. If Qualcomm is interested in improving the lives of their customers, improving wellness, improving overall physical activity, we should encourage them. We should applaud them. Some of the Fitbit data and some of the um, tracking devices – could have wonderful implications. Imagine someone after a hip surgery who is given a tracking device just to make sure that they keep walking after Mm. hip surgery to make sure their physical therapy and that their recovery is well. Maybe using this information and you see a slow decrease in the number of steps someone's taking every day after surgery is an early indication of an infection where you have to get them back to the doctor and you want to save them all those We call it morbidity and mortality, but we want good things to happen. So I think with the fitness tracker data, there's lots and lots of wonderful things used in the right place, used appropriately, that we can improve lives. So there's Qualcomm, uh, Fitbit, all the other trackers, figuring out exactly how to use these appropriately in the clinical care is something we need to figure out
2: i love the it no. and don't you think that i mean that's cutting edge care right that's and yeah. again in, in the in the purest sense that seems incredibly healthy on the show recently too we've had other experts come on and talk about what's happening to a lot of our click data and a lot of our information that's being gathered about us through advertisers and the profiles that are being created on us, boy, what happens when they start adding into our profiles our health data, our fitness data?
0: Besides recommending what type of activities or if your fitness tracker is tied to your search history, you might get a promotional advertisement for a 5K or a marathon. You also, based on the advertising history, there are different aspects. Maybe they find that you tend to go to a certain... With GPS or geolocation or Wi-Fi ability, you could say, hey, you're going to this area of town. Maybe a restaurant next door to the one you usually visit will give you an ad. So, um, again, how we use this, how we make money, these are things that this is a new area. We haven't figured these things out. We know mobile search ads. People have figured out how to monetize that. But the health data, the... The activity data and how to integrate that, I mean, we haven't gotten to the point yet where your Fitbit data shows you had two nights of bad sleep and all of a sudden you have ads for insomnia medication over the counter.
2: Oh, brother, (laughs) can you imagine that? But It'll happen. No, that'll – I mean, don't you think – I mean, at at some point – It's it's going to happen once they have the data and the data is we're finding out becoming so much more valuable than even, you know, I mean, because you can sell the data for such a premium that might even be more valuable to some of these companies like Fitbit than even their own consumers buying the, the product.
0: Well, uh, look at Facebook. They give their product away for free and they find that the eyeballs of their users is more valuable than charging for their software. If we do end up having a case where the activity trackers in general are given away for free or for example, the Qualcomm um United Healthcare if they were willing to pay you up to $1,500 in health savings account um money to have you wear the Fitbit and try to reach activity goals. Wow. So You got a free Fitbit plus money in order to try to be healthy and their primary purpose of that was not necess- was to increase your number of steps, decrease your overall cost for health insurance. But again, what are they going to do with the data On the back end side, after they've collected all of this, can they turn around and think the other way? Now that we have the risk profiles of individuals, meaning are you a high risk? Are you going to cost us lots of information or low risk? How long do they need to have your footbit data?
2: Mm, Boy, that's – it's a lot of interesting questions, Andrew. Talk about the – talk about what really what's available so far in in the use of this technology because i know that their goal would be to get to a point where they can use these devices to actually start uh, diagnosing or you know be able to start creating algorithms and understanding who fits what criteria to to then be more proactive in healthcare what actually exists today
0: what exists today let me give – there are numerous different Fitbit datas uh, or activity trackers. So I, we don't have enough time to go over every them, yeah. single manufacturer. So right now, the common Fitbit that is issued out is a 3D gyroscope. So they keep track of what direction and how much movement. But the only thing they actually translate or transmit to them is the number of steps they think you've taken and your heart rate. Hmm. So even with those two data points, people are like, oh, it's just the number of steps. It's heart rate. It's not really that big of a deal. One of the things people don't realize about heart rate is your overall stability or instability. A heart rate can be a surrogate about how healthy you are people don't have a flat heart rate of like 60 beats per minute every single day of their life. It goes up a little bit, you get excited, it goes down a little bit, you... Catch a cold, yeah. Yeah. So so it's bouncing around. And one of the interesting things that they haven't used Fitbits for, but they've used other heart rate um, measures for, is how variable or how much does your heart rate bounce around and how does that one measure relate to your overall illness profile so they don't need to know that you have cancer or diabetes or obesity if your heart rate is flat as a tabletop then you have lots of other things going on around and you're sick so even with the number of steps you take and just heart rate that we're currently measuring is anyone going to make a clinical decision saying you're really sick and you need to do something um no can an insurance company or other people use this information to say, you know what, based on our understanding of physiology, you're likely to be a higher risk? Yes. Mm. So, again, it's just limited data. How many steps? What's your heart rate? After that, they try to t- figure out how much sleep you have. or How does sleep relate? I mean, again, disturbances in sleep. Yeah, depression and sleep are correlated. Do they have a specific sleep profile that would relate to depression? And could you help engage individuals who are depressed before they have a full-blown depressive episode? Maybe. If not, then will the insurance companies use it to say, ooh, you have depression, which will increase your overall risk of illness, and we're going to increase your rates. Yeah. So the information by itself is not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It's how the companies use it.
2: No, I think and that's I, I, a challenge. Yeah, exactly. And we'll we'll uh, we'll take a break in a bit and come back and talk about how they use it. Before we go to break, one of the things that you brought up in your article is, I mean, where this goes in the future is, I mean, your article it's it's so great at talking about the fact that. It also can eventually maybe start analyzing voice patterns, speech patterns to pick up mm-hmm. neurological disorders. It could um, even eye tracking software could measure cognitive understanding. I mean, there's a lot of there's a, I just was in the hospital with a gallbladder problem. But I'm sitting there thinking, boy, uh, if if I if they could leave and somehow um just have a test that i could take on an app and the fitbit could send me the message that i need to go take this thing on the uh, just the communication ability would be i think impressive but you were also talking about a a um a, not an a uh, what's it called like a a contest or that qualcomm is putting together a competition for uh innovators developers to create other programs or products. Do you remember um, mentioning that in your article? Talk about that competition they put together.
0: So if your audience is familiar with the original Star Trek, the tricorder, the idea that a little handheld device could diagnose you without the presence of a doctor or a doctor with a handheld device could um, Diagnose even better, and the reason they did this in Star Trek was you're on a ship in the middle, of millions and millions of miles away. You're not going to have all the expert medical care on the ship with you. So the Qualcomm Prize was a competition where they wanted pe- they wanted companies and innovators, just like they had the X Prize for their first. Uh, private spaceship that could go up into space and back down twice within 24 hours, they had an X prize for the tricorder. So they have two finalists now that can diagnose. The challenge was 12 clinical diagnosis that the device can measure as well as the 13th, the absence of disease. And sometime this quarter, before the end of the summer, they're supposed to announce which one of the two finalists actually were able to build a device that – we're not talking about diagnosing the hundreds of thousands of diseases and illness, but the question is how can you diagnose the um, presence of – Certain common diseases with just a handheld device. Is it heart rate? Is it steps? Is it temperature? Is it respiratory rate? Amazing. I don't know what they have not revealed who the two finalists are. But yeah. there was a just like with the, I believe it was um, Virgin uh, Galactic. Of course, uh, which, they're were involved. The ones who uh, were able to successfully launch the um, um, plane up. Twice in 24 yeah. hours. The question is, who is going to, is it going to be Qualcomm? Is it going to be another group of innovators who are able to take just a handheld device with a couple of sensors or even without sensors and be able to diagnose? So this is, it was aspirational, but the idea behind this was to get lots of people excited, get innovators to say, ooh, let's go after this really big prize. And obviously they have two people that they're trying, or two companies, uh, probably teams of individuals. These projects are large enough where it's not just one person. Uh, How do they, which one are they going to announce? And I look forward to the announcement. I have not seen the announcement come across. Um, The deadline keeps changing. So what I'm assuming is they're just trying to uh, refine the expectations or figure it out. Maybe it's a tie. I don't know. Well,
2: and then imagine Uh, that you have the device that you could also just keep uploading new data, new information, new diagnoses. Then all of a sudden the school nurse could afford maybe a, a device like this or the school district could afford it. And um, boy, then, I mean, you'd, again, you don't have to diagnose everything. But uh, if we could diagnose, I don't know, a common cold or a, uh, I mean, other issues, eating issues, uh, you know, lack of healthy eating styles or whatever. I mean, just giving us more information. But we'll take a break, come back, speak more with Dr. Andrew Boyd. The problem won't be maybe the ability to do all of this. The problem's going to be... How do we lead it? How do we manage it? What policies do we make? We'll come back, talk policy, and how we make sure that uh, our data is protected and that it's not used punitively against us. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, healthier, happier lives. We'll be back. back, friends. Do you have a Fitbit or a smartwatch that is tracking your health? Well, if so, you got to be listening up. Joining us is Dr. Andy Boyd. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical and Health and Information Sciences at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, before working at the university, he came to the industry working on electric health records, which we've heard about for years. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we could connect all of our health records Maybe those records could be, uh, you know, placed on a chip, on a card. Some would even love it inserted into you, placed on a band on your wrist. Or how about just backed up on your Fitbit eventually um, and have all of this information accessible the minute you'd walk into a hospital? Wouldn't that be powerful? Well, Andy Boyd is here, Dr. Andy Boyd, and he's uh, he's the author of an article. Could your Fitbit data be used to deny you health insurance? Dr. Boyd, we've talked about all the benefits of uh, of this technology, but then I wonder, boy, how do we get it through the political world without it, you know, taking an uglier turn?
0: Well, when we consider health insurance, health insurance is usually considered... It's a heavily regulated industry in every state, at a national level, at the state level. And there are certain things that... As a society, we have said it's not fair to price insurance based on certain factors. There's, for example, there was your genomic data, what you're born with. There was a national law called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. Society had decided, hey, you're born with your genes, you get it from your parents, this isn't something you can change. Pricing your health insurance based on what your mom and dad gave you isn't fair. Hmm. So on a national level, when that was passed uh, about seven to ten years ago, we said, you know what, as a society, we have decided the way you were born, trying to price your health insurance, it's not really fair, which makes sense. The question with health data and tracking data is how do... What does society think? I mean, obviously, if someone is healthy, they're acting um, appropriately. They're walking 10,000 steps. They're exercising. They're eating healthy. They're not doing all the behavioral aspects that actually lead to many of the health diseases we currently have. We want to reward them. But how do you reward people who are making good, healthy choices without penalizing people who either have were born genetically from their parents or they're just inherit they have a higher risk of heart disease versus how do you make it where with health insurance if you are too high risk previously the insurance company could deny you health coverage so what what happened before was listen you're really sick you really need to see the doctor but you ha- you don't have a way to actually get the health insurance to go see the doctor. So how we decide these decisions, exactly where we fall, these are conversations we should be having. I mean, are people like, oh, just share the Fitbit data with everyone. We'll see what we come up with. And um, um, I like the free devices. Maybe I get a free ice cream cone for every 100,000 steps I take. I mean, again... I these are things people need to think about, but we need to talk about the challenge. Yeah, I mean,
2: and we it doesn't seem like we. It's almost like we defer these conversations to our elected officials in a way, and mm-hmm. like even how the Congress just uh, the GOP Congress yeah. uh, just passed. Kind of the repeal of Obamacare. You again. It, it, a lot of people didn't read it as the, the way the Democrats did it. I don't even remember ever having this discussion about the genes shouldn't be the driver of how you pay for your insurance. I, I mean, I love that idea. I, I don't even remember that conversation seven years ago. So, in and in a way, it's almost like a lot of people just don't care. You know what I mean? They they just they they're they're not. They don't care, I mean, at this point, of about it.
0: You are correct. One of the interesting things that the field itself is maturing, usually with new technologies, you have the, real, the people who love the technologies, they're alpha users. They're the ones who go out and buy the next best phone. Yeah, next the early adopter, business. yeah. The early adopters, thank you. You have those individuals and they will go out and buy the most expensive, the fanciest device, and they tend to be less concerned about their privacy and the data implications than everyone else in the society. If you look at what's happened over the last year or so, many of these activity trackers have either gone out of business, they've been purchased, or their overall sales are starting to level off or decline. So. They can't be a business just living off of early adopters. So you're right. Right now, many of the early adopters, they don't have the same concerns that everyone else has. And so as we're moving beyond the early adopters, as we're seeing partnership with insurance companies, as we're seeing partnership with employers, these are questions that we need to be having. Are there legal agreements in place about we can't use the data for this information? How do you enforce them? All these other wonderful challenges. But again, once you move beyond the early adopters and early technologists, how are we actually going to use the data? Because again, if you're in a hospital, if you're at an academic health center, your job is to try to make everyone's lives better. You're trying to improve the overall outcome for lower costs, better outcomes. But who's driving it? If we're all partnering with the insurance companies, the insurance companies want you healthy too, but they also have to return a profit to your shareholders. Right. So how do you balance these competing interests and how are people going to use the data?
2: Uh, I've even had just a, a friend of mine that's a dermatologist, has a, a local office here in Utah, and yeah. I don't know, maybe has 30 employees, 20 employees. He bought everybody, every one of his employees a Fitbit. He actually bought yeah. me one because he think, yeah. he thought I needed it. And, okay. uh, no, he bought me – he bought smartphones yeah. or smartwatches. And um, he bought them for everybody, and he did it really as a gesture like you're talking yeah. about, wanting to promote health and everything – but then um, we've even had conversations about the fact that sometimes you, you even have to be careful how you how you push challenges like, hey, let's have a contest. And everybody has to show their Fitbit data to prove how many steps you've taken and whoever's mm-hmm. taken them. Mo- I mean, you, you have to there's kind of an ethics side to this, too. Right. I mean, this is personal information, personal data. And ag- again, it just it, there's some nuance to it
0: there is nuance and obviously with a small dermatology office with 20 people he has a personal relationship with each person right. and if he gave them the device the person would then be sharing the data with the activity tracker company or the smart watch right. manufacturer he is not going to sit there and say, you know what? I can only employ eighteen of you. I'm going to yeah. use a Fitbit tracker in order to get rid of two of you.
2: Stacy, you got to walk more. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't be punitive.
0: Well, yeah. So the point, though, is when you're dealing with ten thousand people, when you're dealing with thousands of people or millions of people with this activity tracker, and you have to decide who are, out of a million people, who are the thousand people you're going to not enroll next year in your insurance program because you're losing money on them, Fitbit data or activity tracker data would be a way to Mm -hmm. say, hey, you're at the bottom one percent or fraction of a percent of all insurance, you're a bad risk. We don't need to insure you.
2: So, Andy, so, where where you keep saying we need to have these conversations. Um, I guess one way to do it is like writing the article that you did yeah. that gets everybody asking. But is this is are these the conversations that biomedical and health information scientists are talking about? Are they bringing these things up? Are they where do these conversations take place that matter?
0: There are a number of different venues. Within the field of biomedical and health informatics, there is a whole area of ethics and legal implications. So I have published a few articles. There are people who dedicate their whole lives to the ethical and legal implications of electronic health data. There are a number of different centers who have dedicated to this. Uh, We have come, besides publishing the article and talking on a radio show like yourself, the other ones are as you see policy that comes up from national organizations, for example, the repeal of Obamacare. Seven years ago, when people were able to change your insurance rates, we didn't have Fitbit data. So as we work with or collaborate with individuals who are pushing the edge of the technology, there are faculty members, there are researchers who sit there and say, "Ooh." Are there other ways we could use this?" And so you're right, we don't have a huge public relations media campaign saying the end of the world, uh, be careful of your data, but there are a number of venues, there's a number of challenges, um, and again, the article is one way. There are, again, this is just having these conversations or at least saying, hey, If this is something you're worried about, great. If you have more important things that consumers and people are are individually worried about, that's fine. I mean, when you consider, we consider name, address, phone number, protected information for most individuals. Just you can't go out willy-nilly and pick it all up. But most people will give it away for a free T-shirt. So, again, (laughs) what people decide their information's worth versus... Um, yeah, and we want the consumers to decide, but they just need to know ahead of time how the stuff could be used.
2: I agree, I agree, and be aware and 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 know. That, I mean, there's there's agreements you can make. You don't have to always send all of the data back to these companies. Um, just b- kind of buyer beware and get involved and start thinking about it. Don't just assume your data isn't being aggregated and used and start to notice what your health companies are and how they're incentivizing you or your, your own company. Are they incentivizing you to live health programs and plans? Are they gathering more data on you? Just be careful. Just pay attention to it. it. By the way, very beneficial, right? It's your health. We'd love to make sure we live optimal health and simultaneously not get so deep in the data stream that we can't get out of it. We will take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to be talking about 14 uh, keys to healthier relationships. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know, as we are on the show, we're always trying to give you more and more ideas to live healthier, happier lives the Fitbit is one way. Another one is there's signs of healthy relationships. I had a client come up that wants to create an app to, to, to on your Fitbit to determine if your heart rate goes up and... Um, it hears certain volume in your voice, then it would start sending you cues or tools to help you communicate better. Interesting. Because it might be a sign you're arguing with your spouse. Hmm. But you have other signs, Terry,
4: that you've been looking to improve your marriage. Time Magazine had this uh, post, 14 signs you're in a healthy relationship. Sometimes you read these things that are kind of gimmicky. Is it real information? Is this useful information? So I want to run it by you. Okay, okay, okay. So a sign that you're in a healthy relationship. Yes speak your mind to your spouse. That's a great sign. Now, unless you're a jerk. So, I would say if both of you
2: speak your mind, you're probably in a you're probably in a healthy relationship. What if, about
4: the idea of no topic being off limits?
2: That's probably a great sign. Okay. I mean, cuz you shouldn't have, right? In a healthy loving relationship, everything's free game. Especially your work or lack thereof. What? Your problems okay. should no, always be addressed. You're not talking like me no, no, specifically. Not you. Yeah, you, okay. the general
4: you. Whew, that was close. Yeah. Um, you have your own space. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah. I mean, I call that the restroom.
2: Okay. The bathrooms. where, But you should have a place that you feel like is yours
4: in the home. I had a neighbor, his wife. Oh, the neighbor? Uh, she was home. Okay. She's she's a spend you know she's a, a homemaker home with the kids. She decided she needed a break. She went to Disneyland with her sister. Okay, that's fine. Huh. But we we kind of need to. It almost now, sounds like she made that decision unilaterally. Well, she just said, "I need a break. I'd like to do this. What do you yeah, think?" Let's he said, she yeah. do it." Yeah.
2: yeah.
4: He has. Um, he likes watching NBA basketball. There you go. He has him and some friends all get in and have tickets, so he goes and does his thing. Mm-hmm. That's great. I worry when you like take separate vacations.
2: Right. That worries me a little bit, because if it, it sometimes if it's too easy to not be together,
4: right? Well, it seems really like healthy the situation, yeah. And that she just needed to go. That's so it. He That's had it. the kids yeah. for. A you week. just
2: sit there and you smile and say, "Babe, whatever, no problem." You go, you go. I love you. That's I, healthy.
4: My son and I were camping. Yeah. My wife had a spa situation set up with her sister. Pretty. That's a perfect. I came home early situation. so she could go take that, and then I was gone. She ate sushi, which uh, is perfect. I' real like big sushi. fan of sushi. Oh, it's great. I enjoy my food cooked. So <laughs> she uh, she did that. Healthy, to, I think that's totally great healthy. Was. Totally yeah. healthy. Look at,
2: did you see all the notes Jeff's taken over yeah, I know. He's, he's like really a lot of notes. It's like he's he's learning new information. He's now preparing to go on a vacation. So there's two. Okay, those are great. We'll, ha- we'll, have, we'll have, more have more throughout the show as the show goes on. Signs of a healthy relationship. Good stuff. We will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to continue the journey. More uh, tools, information, and note-taking.
4: On a chalkboard.
2: Doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the
2: Matt Townsend Show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
2: Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, um, sad news about the passing of Roger Moore and started a conversation that I'm not sure will ever end between my co-hosts here, Terry South, Jeffrey Simpson, now have just gone Bonderific on me. Ruin? Really? Quoting every show, naming everyone. See, it's funny, though, your favorite Bond person.
3: You asked me, how can you know all that? And I said, yeah, but you've seen all those films. And you said, oh, yeah, I've seen all of them. I've seen
2: all of them. But I haven't... I, I could not list five Bond movies? I'll bring you my box set that I have. You have a box set,
3: do you? Yeah. Okay, so what's your favorite James Bond film, Terry?
4: I think I've watched... Um, what, You Only Live Twice? For some reason, that one always just interested me the way that he, he he's like assassinated within the first 30 seconds and then he's like alive there's this whole yeah plot hmm. of how they're faking his death and for some reason that intrigued me and I watched my father and I would watch the it was the ABC movie night of the week yeah. or whatever and it, they always just ran James Bond movies yeah. so we'd sit and watch them my dad recorded them we still have all the VHS do you tapes remember in my they were all house. clean it was cleaned up they cleaned them up and then I saw one that wasn't edited and I'm like
2: whoa well, that a guy's, little different. Bond's kind of dirty yeah. they
4: always have some kind of a Thanksgiving
3: Bond marathon too yep. where you can just watch all oh, of really? them
2: oh really oh yeah Did um, I, it's interesting too I was sad I'm like Sir Roger Moore passes away I can't believe it that's sad and Jeff's like, well, he was 89. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's a good point. Like, he's old. At some point. That's old. Yeah. I mean, at but some point, you got to let these people die.
3: Sean Connery's still alive. Is he? His his uh, film
2: Goldfinger's probably my favorite. Well, I... I that's... Yeah. But it's because you like to be painted. You like body paint. Hmm. Anywho. We probably shouldn't... Let's yeah. not go there. Uh... Remember when he came in all green? Yeah. That was weird. Yeah. A no. over the top for not, Yeah, not day. quite gold. Yeah. Okay,
3: what about favorite Roger Moore James Bond movie? Hmm.
4: I don't know. I don't know any. I don't know any names. See, I'll, I watch them all. I mean, I have the box set, so I'll just look at it and go, well, eh, let's I like, do this one, but I there's like that the, one that just jumps out. I like the one where he, he kind of
2: sails off into the sunset right. with the Bond girl. I like that one. Okay. Well, hey. Whichever way you like it. I mean, it seems like in the end, my favorites were the ones where he gets to just, like, go on a trip with a Bond girl at the end. That's
4: every single one of them.
2: Oh, really? Yes. Okay. See, so?
4: I like those. You can watch Thunderball and then watch the same story almost in Never Say Never Again. And kind of yeah. see how, yeah, see, how again, Roger Moore okay. and then Sean Connery right. play kind of right. that same we're, we're gonna move on. script with a little bit of change. Because
2: there. this is, again, you guys, you guys will go Bond all day.
3: Well, I'll just say that my favorite Roger Moore, James Bond film was The Spy Who Loved Me. Again, if you've got a mm. great Bond villain, it's a great Bond movie. Oh. And this one has Jaws, the guy with yeah. the metal teeth.
4: Oh, that guy was freaky. Yeah. Then he shows up in Moonraker. But then he's a good guy by that point, right? He's a bad guy. Then he kind of changes. Has a eternal heart. We're going to move on. on. But then there's space stations and space Uh, shuttles before the space shuttle was really out. I thought you guys just like. I thought you liked superheroes. The man with the golden gun is cool. There's a there's a stunt in there where they flip a car over a canal. That's crazy. Well,
3: because Sauron was
2: in that,
4: right? From Lord of the Rings. You'll hear
3: more
2: of this talk on um, screen cleaning on Friday. You guys can carry this conversation on on screen cleaning. Doesn't that right.
4: kind of go against the whole premise of the show? This show?
2: No, screen cleaning. I don't. I don't know what the premise of screen cleaning is. <laughs> you don't
3: even know what the name of it is half the time. It's called screen cleaning.
2: Yeah, it's a great show. It's it's clean screens. It's the it's the final hour of the week
3: of this show. You've got the emphasis in the wrong place. Screen cleaning. It's like spring cleaning or spring. Well, now you're yeah, making messed. me exactly. second-guess myself.
2: Well, okay, so you're good. We're all good. Just tune in. Branding, it's important. Just tune in on Fridays, uh, 11 Eastern Time, 9 Mountain Time, and you can you can listen to the joys of screen cleaning. By the way, I don't know if I should be watching this music video. Okay. yeah. Turn that off. Um, We've got a lot to talk about, too. In a bit, we're going to talk about uh, how poverty, is it possible that being poor changes your brain? Well, we have researchers that will be joining us that say, yeah, yeah, it does. It impacts your decision making because poverty causes a lot of stress. And when you have a lot of stress, you don't get into the executive functioning areas of your brain as much which help – which tends to make – you tend to make worse decisions. So they're going to show how they are actually charting that you can train and teach people to make better decisions and uh, and really pull people out of poverty. It's a pretty powerful – it's a pretty powerful lesson I think for all of us, uh, which also might help us maybe judge people less that are stuck in poverty, that are troubled by poverty and um, – and really, all of us, we've got to figure out how to how to eliminate it. And that's the way we do it. One way, is starting with how we use our brains. So we'll get to that coming up. Plus, of course, some headlines. We have some interesting um, news from the animal kingdom. Uh, yeah, because, you know, animals running amok, bears honking horns, geese attacking. Plus, we'll get to a uh, we'll get to, we'll fill you in on a, a little pizza caper. Coming up. That as well. So um, let's first get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country?
4: On Monday, the Supreme Court ruled that gerrymandering of two North Carolina congressional district maps was done on racial grounds to yield a Republican advantage and was thus unconstitutional. The court ruled 8-0 to, to strike down the District 1 map, 5-3 to, to struck down the District 12 map. In North Carolina, Justices Samuel Alito, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Justice Anthony Kennedy dissented from the latter ruling, CNN reports. Clarence Thomas joined the court's liberals on District 12 while Neil Gorsuch did not participate because the case was argued before he was confirmed to the court. Republicans have been accused of drawing districts to illegally concentrate black voters who are typically liberal and consequently making the surrounding districts more conservative. That's all from USA Today. So the Supreme Court made that decision. Mm. Two Atlanta area middle school teachers have been dismissed uh, of their duties after an eighth grader with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, received the most likely to not pay attention award after earlier this week at a at a school assembly, Nicole Edwards' 14 year old daughter received the award as part of the Spirit Week activities at Memorial Middle School, uh, located 25 miles east of Atlanta. The the public school district superintendent Richard Autry was subsequently notified by the uh, notified by the uh, the parent. The teachers who handed out the award will not be back at the school. Uh, They're not going to be employed by the school district. The, uh, the, the, The mom said her goal was to make sure that this horrible event never happens to another kid. As a parent, it's my job to protect my child from being humiliated and bullied, especially when the bully is her teacher. The most likely not to pay attention award for a kid with ADHD. Hmm. Not a good move by not those teachers. Not a good move. And finally, some sad news. Zack Snyder, director of Batman v. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and the upcoming Justice League movie tells The Hollywood Reporter he is stepping away from the Justice League uh, movie, uh, which is in post-production in order to deal with the sudden death of his daughter. Oh, stepping no. into Shepard the movie, though, is uh, in the, through the post and shooting some more scenes is actually a man by the name of Joss Whedon, who did the Avengers movies. Okay, right, and Buffy so, the Vampire Slayer, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So there was some concern. Uh, Zack Snyder's daughter committed suicide. She was twenty something years old recently, and they've been trying to work their way through it. He thought he could work, help him work through that by diving into yeah, his work, getting into work, but... distracting himself. But his, his his family needs him, his kids need him. He needs to put his focus there. Then then you know, there's concern about the movie. Yeah, who well, cares? What's going to happen and to the movie? Take care. He of this brings guy. in the guy. Yeah. That made that made the Avengers what it was. That's cool. So he's and
2: that's tr- cool that the guy's stepping in, able to pick it up for him. Right, he'll
4: step in and sometimes and, and, you just need a hand. It'll be good. It's good. So family's taken care of, movies <sighs> taken care of. Life stories. still happens, doesn't it?
3: Well, and Josh Whedon isn't he going to be doing the uh, the Batgirl movie? Yes. So it makes sense that they would
2: involve him in this project. Speaking of Batgirl movies, uh, Pizza Hut worker. See, it doesn't really tie in that <laughs> way, Matt. <but> good job. <laughs> uh, pizza Hut worker pepper sprayed a coworker in a dispute over some toppings. After an argument sparked by how pepperoni and cheese were placed on the pizza, a Pizza Hut supervisor spray pepper sprayed a coworker, according to a police report. So. As you know, they're fighting. over. That's not how you put the pep. You don't put the pepperoni that way. And it started a fight. Sandy Springs police have issued a warrant for the arrest of Anderson Ramon Lewis for disorderly conduct. conduct. The pepper spray was discharged in the direction of the female victim's face. But police said it didn't seriously harm her as it only landed on her arm. Well, you know pepper spray on the arm can hurt, too. I guess. Uh witnesses told police that two employees had a verbal altercation that ended with Lewis using pepper spray. Police said witnesses told them that Lewis initially confronted the victim about the placement of pizza ingredients before telling her that she needed to go home or get fired. She responded by telling Lewis that he wasn't her manager, bada boom, bada bing. It got ugly. Police said the general manager attempted to separate the two uh, and, Lewis need, and told Lewis he needed to leave. Lewis left but came back and continued to provoke the victim. That's when Lewis discharged the pepper spray at the victim and in front of the general manager and it got ugly. Okay? Before Lewis left the store again, he wrote his address on a paper napkin, slammed it down on the counter and said if the victim wanted to fight, that's where she could find him. Wow. He then threw trays of pizza dough uh, and pizza and dough on the floor before leaving. It's interesting how he could have so much respect
3: for the process and then just throw everything all over the floor.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That, by the way, all was not lost because that was where they invented a new pizza that day called the extra peppery pepperoni. Hmm. It's uh, it, uh, a lot of people don't it like it. It kind of burns the tongue it's, a little bit. Yeah. Luckily, he wasn't using the anchovy spray.
3: You know, we actually have audio from the, se- oh, no. from the video, like the security video. Oh, you got security. So thing. the audio is not the best. It's not, as, but, you know, it's but because it's, it's pulled from the, the yeah. video. Here so it this is. is
2: this is uh, TV radio. Yeah.
1: No, no, no. You're placing those peps all wrong. Whatever. How many times have we talked about this? If you can't respect the art of pep placement, then maybe you should just go home. You're not the boss of me, Andy. Hey, 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 what is going on in here? Do you two want to be separated? Andy started it. Well, she wasn't following pep placement protocol. You're supposed to place it in a circular motion, not just throw the peps on the pizza willy-nilly. Andy, I know you're passionate about pizza, but this is the third time we've had this conversation. If you want to make it in this business, you've got to lead with compassion. Now, I think you better call it a day and go home. See, I told you you were out of line. Oh, I see. But once I spray you with this bell pepper spray, you won't see. Ah, it's all over my arm. Just consider yourself lucky I didn't use the anchovy spray. Now, if you want to fight, here's my address. Just don't come after 8 o'clock at night because my mom likes to turn in early.
2: Hmm.
3: She lives with his mom.
2: Yeah. Boy, I didn't know that they have a little metal ball in the, in the pepper spray can.
3: Well, it sounded like it was bell pepper spray. You yeah, said. that would
2: be good. That would be great.
3: I think they use it on the pizzas when they run
2: out of the bell peppers. It sounds like the whole management team, they're about 18. That one manager seems a little spitty. Yeah. I'm he, not sure that I, I don't think I want pizza anymore. That, that's why we left
3: the name of the pizza place out. To yeah. protect them and also so that you would
2: never know. Boy. Well, okay. That's good audio. I think I'd fire all of them. Even that manager. <laughs> I'd fire every last one of them. I don't know any teenagers that are that passionate about their pizza job. No, really. And I didn't know that there was a certain way that you have to... I didn't know... I did not know of the circular motion that you've got to put the peps on. And I didn't know pep was short for pepperoni. It's, it's uh, biz lingo. Yeah. Boy. Never worked in the pizza biz. Just, just probably supported three of them. Made a lot of people rich. Uh, we're going to take a break, my friends. When we come back, we're going to talk about poverty. Does it change your brain? Think about it. If you were living in poverty... Do you think it would alter how your brain works over time? Well, we have some research that says it does. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. A new study by Empath uh, examines how poverty really affects the brain. Poverty, uh, people in poverty tend to get stuck in vicious cycles where stress leads to bad decision-making, compounding other problems in their life and more stress in their life, and, uh, and on goes the cycle, right? So here to examine with us the thought process of someone suffering from poverty is Dr. Elizabeth Babcock, president and CEO of Empath. We are gl- uh, grateful to have you here, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, this I think is pretty groundbreaking because we we now know more and more that there's part of our brain, that prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning part of our brain, I guess it's right behind the uh our forehead, right, and it's but it helps us make better decisions, kind of think things through, be less reactive, but according to your research, I guess what we're finding out is. The constant stress of poverty makes it is it harder to get to that area or what happens?
6: Well, the stresses of poverty uh, affect us in ways that um, make it harder for us to think about uh, choices and options when we're dealing with a problem, make us harder to think, uh, to come up with a plan B for how to get out of the problem. It makes it harder for us to sort of think about the implications of what we're doing right now for our future, um, makes it harder for us to think about our priorities and to organize our lives. Um, and it makes it harder for us to sort of stay calm and not overreact when we're in a challenging situation.
2: Hmm. And you, what you did, though, is you, I guess you did, you did, uh, were they fMRIs? What were they on the brain?
6: Well, we certainly didn't. My organization actually takes this science and applies it to find new ways to help people move out of poverty. So we're not the researchers who've looked at the brain itself and the way the brain works. What we've looked at is what scientists are telling us about the way the brain works on stress. And then we've taken that and done research on how to use that science to create stronger programs and better tools for helping people who are living under stress.
2: And the data is, it's pretty mind-blowing. I mean, You've been able to improve uh, this executive functioning and the ability to get into that part of the brain and, and in, I guess in turn make better plans, make you know, more adjustments to be able to get out of these situations. Talk about the data and what, what you've been able to do in some of your trials.
6: Well, we've, uh, we've come up with new ways of what we call mentoring or coaching um, people who are living under the stresses of poverty or maybe violence or trauma. Um, and uh, in these coaching processes have been able to help people strengthen their own planning and decision making and, and set their own goals in a more powerful way and follow through to achieve them. And at the same time, when those coaching practices are repeated over and over again over time, then what happens is we actually see the brain itself responding, and um, we think we're seeing uh, real changes in the way that the brain functions, uh, especially in, in children. So um, there's a, sort of a two fur here that happens with this work. One is that um, the tools and approaches help people in real time sort of sort out and make better decisions, but then over time, if that process can be repeated, you can actually, uh, we think, start to see changes in the way the brain itself is working.
2: Amazing. And it's, I mean, we, because it's so easy for people to just not understand why some are in poverty and some aren't, and there's a ton of data out there, but to to all of a sudden think that it it then creates stress, it creates more stressful lives, and then that impacts the brain, which impacts decision-making, which then keeps people trapped. Yeah. Um, I mean, that concept is is it's it's tragic. It's it's debilitating. And to know that for for centuries, this has been going on, really um, yeah. yours. So your organization, Empath stands for Economic Mobility Pathways. Did you initially start out just to improve the economic mobility um, of of the more impoverished society?
6: Yes. I mean, my organization's history goes back to the early 1820s, and we've been working to try to help low-income individuals move out of poverty for that time, for that long, um, but we have now new tools at our disposal that are just uh, wonderfully exciting in in what the power of what they can create. Because we're building these new tools out of brand new science that's only been around, you know, for a couple of decades, and new things are emerging every every year about uh, about how the brain works under stress, and we can use those to create um, different ways of working. And so I can tell you that um, when I came here to Empath um, ten years ago. Um, we had to find somebody who had moved out of poverty to give a speech at um, one of our big annual huh. events. And we claimed that that's what we did. We moved people out of poverty. And we looked for that one person that we'd actually fully moved out of poverty, and we couldn't even find one. Wow. Um, and now I can tell you that 10 years later, you know, sort of employing these techniques, the folks who undergo coaching who start out making maybe um, as little as, well, on average, $11,000 a year, Um, actually get to the place that they're over three years on average with us are actually making $23 an hour or about, uh, you know, $46,000 a year. Um, uh, And also uh, folks that have no college education in that same amount of time, 80% of them are going to have a new college level or post-secondary credential. And that's, you know, uh, rates of college graduation that are four and five times higher than the community norms. So we know we're on to something really pretty spectacular
2: and 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 because this is so intergenerational I mean uh, you change one you you change even if you just lighten the load and and through the coaching change the the child's life you may have permanently removed an entire family out of
6: yeah poverty if you are you're absolutely on to what is just most heartening and exciting about this. We had a a dad of one of our participants actually go on Facebook congratulating his daughter with the progress that she'd made. And the way he worded it on his Facebook post was, um, Laureen, you have removed the family curse. I, I, I found that to be so powerful um, and the way that we see it, of course, is especially in our impacts on children, because um, we can do tests of executive functioning of, you know, the organizational skills of children and their ability to control their behavior, and we can do standardized tests of children, and even while they are homeless even while they are still in highly stressful circumstances, yeah. 88% of them will have gains in their executive functioning scores. Um, so, you know, that's a pretty amazing and really counterintuitive kind of set of results.
2: While they're in the system. And then while they're as,
6: still in shelter, yeah. And as
2: they grow up, they can... I mean, imagine, I guess, if is it over time if they keep maintaining or if they keep having new skills given to them, new practice uh new um uh i guess what's the name of it when with your neural pathways just f- you know formally yeah stronger neural, yeah, pathways, stronger neural right. pathways once they once they've done that enough they can become the change in their own lives beca- being less reactive making better skills and by the way still not having the money but being able to start to stick to the other path out
6: yeah well, what we know that's um, that's uh, really also affirming about this work is the brain science tells us that the brain itself is coachable, um, the, the scientists call it plastic, that's that right. you actually can improve the way the brain works well into adulthood, and in fact, we think we can make improvements just for it indefinitely, but children are especially plastic. It's the time in our lives where the brain itself is geared to grow, and if we can um, introduce Parents with better skills, better decision-making skills, um, and the the kids can see the parents' behavior being modeled. Um, If we can work with parents and kids together, um, that we we really even more greatly impact the children. And it happens in a couple of ways because you got to remember that stress that's causing these you know these. complications. And so when parents are making more money, whether their brains have changed or not, the, um, the stress levels are lowered, and that helps right. everybody, the kids and the parents. And if the parent's behavior is changing, and they're making better decisions, and they're better able to control their own impulses, then the kids are seeing that modeled, and that affects them as well. So you get this great twofer. You get the coaching that's going on and the decreases of stress, and that's really where the powerful virtuous cycles can happen.
2: And I, I see this with my own clients and my whole program has been basically doing a similar thing with couples where if when they don't know that the stress causes kind of the fight or flight, amygdala firing, which keeps them out of the prefrontal cortex, when they don't, when they don't know that, that that they have another choice and you start to show them that there's another choice and then they start to do it enough that they create that pathway... Um, I guess the powerful thing is it's 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 just a little information, but it's information that finally can solve these systemic problems in their lives.
6: Yes. Um, You know, you're absolutely right. Education is power. And um, what we know from various uh, behavioral psychology um, literature is that just being aware of these effects can impact how people then think about themselves themselves. And it can decrease the the self blaming, which adds to the stress. And people can say, "Oh my gosh, um, no wonder why my head feels frozen. It's because I'm trying to do too much at once, yeah. or because I'm I'm dealing with too much." And that in and of itself can lower the tension um, and help make people be in a place that they can they can improve uh, their own lives, their decisions, their goals, uh, and their achievement of goals over time. Well, yeah.
2: and I'm assuming with with the clarity also. They, they can better evaluate why they do what they do, why they react. I mean, some of what they might find out, too, is they just have anxiety. They have exactly. depression. They have ADHD. And now they can exactly. more, I guess, more clearly go start addressing more root cause issues that then yeah. can get medicated or treated or educated on. And yep. slowly they start eating better, healing, growing. And all of a sudden holding down a job is more doable which then leads to promotion. I mean, it's, it's really power.
6: True. It's it, really true. You know, we, we often say to people, getting out of poverty isn't one thing, right? It's not just your education or your health or your money and how you're managing your right. money or your your personal relationships. It's a lot of things that have to sort of get clicking in order to have a person be able to really make that move out of poverty. And what's really great about this is that Our ability to make wise decisions, our ability to be able to control our impulses, to persist and follow through on goals that are hard to achieve, sort out things, multitask, all of those things are executive functioning um, skills. And if we can strengthen those, then, as you said, all sectors, parenting, our ability to work, our ability to go to school, our ability to manage our money and budget and our time and routines, all of those things are impacted in a positive way. Mm.
2: I can't even just imagine. Now you can think clearly about how to make it to the next paycheck instead of maybe having to fall into crime or or alcohol and drug use to medicate. I mean... So – and here's the thing and I I really – I want you to help us with this, Elizabeth, because I feel like we just don't get it, right? If you haven't lived in real poverty in an inner inner city, we we look at it like you just got to – you know, my grandpa was poor and he just picked himself up and he just – Right. But it's it's one thing to say that – but a lot of this just isn't about character. It's about – It's just about ability. They don't necessarily have the ability to get out of the hole they're they're in, and they're co-creating. The
6: hole is drastically different now than it was in Grandpa's time, right? Because in Grandpa's time. You could get out of high school or maybe even not even graduate from high school. Um, You could get out of high school and grandpa could go into a job that paid a family sustaining wage. And I could go out of high school and my friends could go out of high school into a job that would be, you know, a union or a manufacturing or other type of job that paid a family-sustaining wage. And, you know, those jobs are not there anymore. The world has changed, and we have to get education beyond high school, and it has to be in the right thing. It can't be in 18th century French literature. Yeah, right. <laughs> in order to the border. Right. <laughs> And so it's a much more complicated thing than it was before. But people really do get this, um, Matt. They do get it because, um, you know, we've all experienced what we call this bandwidth tax, this having our brains overwhelmed with too much stress. We've all experienced that. We know what it feels like. It's that coming home at the end of the day when you've had a day that's been a day, your brains are overwhelmed, and all of a sudden you have the kids, you know, wanting help with the homework and the cupcakes baked the next day and you have to pull dinner together and that's where when the wrong question comes to you can you you say talk to the hand yeah you know, because yeah. You know if you make a decision at that point it's not going to be a good one you know we have to sort of decrease the buzz in order to be able to make the next decision wisely we we all know what that feels like totally. when we you know smacked into somebody's bumper yeah. and we have to figure out how to deal with that and suddenly can't find the papers in the glove box you
2: it's know, so it's, true
6: Well, and and with
2: with in poverty, you can't just bail yourself out by hopping in your car and running to the store late at night. Yeah. I mean, you may not have a store in your neighborhood. You may have to get on a bus, but it's too late and the buses are now leaving. And you feel this incredible guilt because you forgot to bring home the cardboard for your daughter to make the poster. Exactly. so I mean, it's. Then, then
5: that just, just adds you don't more have stress as much
6: elasticity you 're yeah. absolutely right there are no many not as many options for how to deal with things when you 're poor, and the time and money is is tighter and so you 're right it makes it even that much harder you 're getting the idea yeah. of how this is a, a, what they call a pile up of stresses
2: it 's kind of maslow 's hierarchy. It seems like where um, the base needs if they 're not being met, the transcendent needs, the higher needs, even the social and you know transcendent needs are less relevant so if we if we're not eating if and that and if we it's hard to make ends meet at a very base level um then it just adds more stress and we kind of quit climbing the ladder
6: it makes it much much harder we know that the way that the brain responds to stress is um, it has a tendency to do what the scientists call tunnel. Um, we have a tendency when we're under stress to think about the, the most pressing thing that's right in front of us and not to really be able to think about much else because we have to deal with it, you know.
5: Mm-hmm. And
6: when we tunnel like that, when we're thinking about that, that most important thing, um, that, and we can't focus as much on anything else, it means we can't focus as much on the other people in our lives, what's going on with them and what's motivating them. Um, we have a tendency to be consumed by the, you know, the biggest problem at hand. Um, and that makes it harder for our interpersonal interactions um, for us to resolve problems with other people, to leverage other resources, to think about other ways to to deal with the problem, um, but just to, you know, try to fight it uh, ourselves head on and and that's where the fight or flight response comes. That's mm. where we we can get, you know, to the point where we're just fighting that one problem or we're shutting down. Yeah. You know, everything gets shut down. And then yeah, yeah. and
2: then hopeless and abandoned yeah. and oh crazy. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Babcock. She is the president and CEO of Economic Mobility Pathways or MPATH. And you can go to her, her website, uh, empathways.com, empathways.org, empathways.org. We'll come back, continue this journey, find out where they are taking these, uh, this research and this learning. I mean, I know it's in Boston. Are they going everywhere in the country now? Is there a way to get it in your community? And uh, what can we do to help out? Making, giving a little hope to those that are in poverty. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Apparently, poverty changes the brain, it creates more stress, puts you probably in, in more in your fight or flight part of your brain, less in your executive functioning, which impacts the decision making, uh, your ability to think through, through things, your tendency to tunnel and maybe uh, lose sight of the bigger picture, which leads to not necessarily better decision making. And when that happens, you're probably more likely to stay in poverty. So there's an organization in Boston, Massachusetts called Empath, uh. Empath, Um, the website is empathways.org, and they are doing what they can to fight poverty and to help find pathways out by teaching, coaching, mentoring, um, and, and helping these people start to make better uh, decisions using their prefrontal cortex, better meaning from a higher executive functioning area instead of just the fight-or-flight brain. And uh, joining us is Dr. Elizabeth Babcock. She is the president and CEO of Economic Mobility Pathways, MPATH, a national charitable organization dedicated to creating new pathways to economic independence for low-income women and their families. Elizabeth, thank you again for being with us.
6: Oh, my pleasure.
2: This is... um, I think this is powerful, and so you go in you. And I know you're doing it in Boston. You're you're talking about maybe getting it also to Mississippi and Seattle area. Is that right?
6: Well, we actually are all across the country now. I think our work is in about 30 states. Great. Um, we have and four other countries outside the United States. Um, We have a wonderful uh, arm of our organization called uh, the Economic Mobility Exchange, and that is um, uh, a program whereby other organizations that want to pick up these brain science-informed tools and approaches can join the exchange, and together um, we share the tools and approaches with them. They decide how those tools can be best used in their own programs, and we have 65 organizations, government organizations and nonprofit organizations across the country um, using these tools and approaches, adapting them to their own communities and organizations, and then um, helping us learn all together how, um, how this works, how this coaching works hmm. in different types of settings.
2: Wouldn't this be valuable for every child to have in school?
6: Well, I think the schools have really been um, the earliest adopters of brain science framing for trying to help um, kids get ahead in school. So yes, definitely, we believe that this kind of awareness and and, um, understanding of the scientific basis of this work is is important in schools and it is being used in schools. I think what we're also uh, doing ourselves as an organization is seeing to it that it gets into the um, human services more broadly. Mm So, for example, we have these coaching approaches now being used in early Head Start programs and in city um, um, multi-service agencies, in programs where um, that are helping people who are getting out of jail and in shelters and housing organizations and in community development efforts like, um, you know, big neighborhoods that are trying to rebuild and redevelop are using um, the coaching practices for residents um, who are going through those kind of changes.
2: What a powerful model, the, the mentoring, the coaching program, where if you could have not just government entities engaging the those in poverty, but members of the of the community coaching and mentoring these skills and traits like a, yeah in a community effort how powerful
6: yes yes um, you know, we have organizations like all across the country um, that are um, basically shifting from what we used to think of case, as a case management. You know, think about that, case management where people are a case to be managed. You know? Yeah, right. Um, and instead, um, helping anywhere that case management has done, there are lots, there's opportunities to create coaching instead. And what that is is, you know, instead of telling people what to do and how to get, you know, how to learn to teach their kids to read or um, how to um, basically apply for a job and get a job instead of, of doing simply that and just teaching somebody something, actually standing alongside them and helping them figure these things out for themselves, giving them information, but also giving them the tools with which to solve their own problems, set their own priorities, and help themselves move ahead. Mm.
2: Love it. And we, I saw it in my own community recently recently. A big debate in Utah about moving homeless shelters and where they're going to put them, and a lot of citizens fighting not in our neighborhood, kind of thing. And I, I sit there and again, I think we maybe we just we we miss what's happening happening with real poverty in our communities. What what can we do, just as citizens in our own world, in our own neighborhoods, to to be a part of this um, and to to make a change, make a difference.
6: Well, as as we said earlier, I think knowledge is power. And so becoming more aware of how poverty and stress and trauma impact us as human beings, adults and children, is a powerful thing because when we understand those uh, those dynamics, we understand the behaviors of other people around us a lot more clearly, and we're less prone to think that people are unwilling to work, unmotivated, um, are are making foolish decisions, and more able to see um, the, the ways in which we are affected by our environment and our circumstances and um, able then to do something about it. So I would say, first and foremost, everyone should become more aware of, of what this new science is telling us. And it's easy. I mean, you know, it's, it's very easy. Our website has tons of information, for example, that people can just go to and read. Um, so that's the first thing. But then the second thing I would say is for all of us to look at ways that we can go from thinking about getting out of poverty or raising a healthy child as simply, you know, one single thing and start to think about it as um, something that uh, both things are accomplished by improving the decision-making, self-regulation, problem-solving skills that we as human beings need to do anything in this life. Yeah. And um, we, can, we can do that. We can, we can basically uh, access tools and approaches that will help us do, do that better.
2: Give us a taste of the content um, that, that uh, you coach and mentor your, the people on that moves them kind of from the fight or flight life and brain to the prefrontal cortex?
6: Well, um, what we start with, with adults or with kids, is something that we call the bridge, uh, the bridge to self-sufficiency for adults and the bridge to a brighter future for children. And what the bridge is, is it's a one single piece of paper that asks people to sort of think about their lives um, in five areas. So to basically put down on paper um, how you're doing in terms of your family stability, um, you know, how uh, your housing and your situation with your housing, your well-being your health and your mental health and your um, social supports, your money, your career, and your education, and mm. ask you to say, are those things where you want them to be, or are there things that you really need to improve in those areas? Now, in, what that allows people to do is do something the brain on stress doesn't let you do, which is to think about more than one thing at once. It forces you to think about more than one thing at once, and so it forces you to set goals in a different way. Let me give you an example. Yeah um... when we were first working without these tools and we had a family that was homeless, we would say to them, okay, what do you want to do while you're here in shelter? And they would say, I want to get out of shelter. I want to get into, you know, an apartment that I can afford to pay for. And then we would say, okay, fill out these forms and this is how you apply for public housing or what you can do to apply to find an apartment. So it's like, you know, here, fill out this thing to get a job or fill out this thing to get an apartment or, you know, whatever, very transactional. With the bridge, what we do is this. We say, okay, you're here in shelter, um, so you're clearly homeless right now. Um, Why are you homeless? I'm homeless because I lost my job. So then we ask them about the job. Why did you lose your job? Well, I lost my job because I kept missing work. Um, Why did you miss the work? Well, I missed the work because my kid is sick with asthma, and I keep getting called out of work to take care of him. Um, what happened when your kid got sick with asthma um, to your money you know how did you handle your bills well I started paying for a lot of things on credit cards because I wasn't making enough money at work mm-hmm. so here you can see we're asking not just one question about yeah. housing but questions about all those areas and what that does is that allows you to begin to see hmm maybe the next step shouldn't be just to fill out the forms maybe the next step should be to figure out how you get your kids asthma treated because that's Seems to be relating to all of this stuff, right?
5: Interesting. And that's yeah.
6: where the intersecting problems begin to be um, something that your head can start to see. Whereas when you're just in the middle of the stressful situation and you're not using a tool or a coaching approach like that, your head doesn't see that, hmm, maybe at the heart of all of this is the asthma. And that's something that all of us who aren't under stress think, well, that should be obvious. Totally, <laughs> right. Actually, um, when you are under stress, it isn't obvious and it is, how you tackle it isn't as clear. But through the process of coaching and using tools that force these different questions to be asked and processes to be followed, people start to learn that um, solving problems isn't a question of just dealing with what seems right in front of you, but it's often a question of dealing with other things as well. Love it.
2: Well, it's powerful, and I congratulate you on your work. Um, I can't recommend more. Uh, people, go check out the website, In pathways.org, in pathways.org you'll find ways to... Uh, to donate if you want, but also just to get involved. You can learn more about all of their tools, their research that goes behind all of this. You can become a member they their powerful stuff. And we appreciate Dr. Elizabeth Babcock for teaching us that it's it's not just they're lazy. It's not just they don't care. They do care. They just, you get stuck and your brain is meant to get you tunneling, right? Get you digging deeper Not necessarily creating the bigger picture clarity uh, if you're in survival mode. Interesting stuff. We'll take a break, come back, uh, and when we come back, we'll be talking about uh, animals taking over. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back. You know... Ah, animals are the most lovable, cute little creatures on earth. Sure, you love to snuggle with your honey, but wouldn't you rather just cuddle up with a little grizzly bear? No. Okay. Police in Virginia said a 200-pound black bear accidentally locked itself inside a resident's car and then honked the horn until it was freed. (laughs) The Roanoke County Police Department said Ryan McClanahan and his family woke up about 5 a.m., Thursday, to the sound of their car horn blaring, Officer Thayer responded to the call and discovered a 200-pound black bear had managed to get to the unlocked car and locked itself inside. The baby bear found some treats inside and caused minor damage to the vehicle. Um, the police department said in the Facebook post, the officer was able to open the back door and the little guy eventually found his way out and then ran off into the woods. I think we've got audio for this one, oh, too. let's hear it. Let's hear it. Shoot. <laughs>
1: I have had it. I'm gonna bust out of here. Oh. I will use
2: strategy. It's a famous bear. Yeah. Is that Yogi?
3: Sounded like
2: him. Hey boo-boo. Or is that boo-boo? That but was Yogi. it sounded like he used strategy uh, yeah. to get out of the car. Well yeah, you gotta use your strategy. Tragedy. And um the rule of this story, the moral is we we lock our cars. And Have you ever, like, had your car alarm go off and then you had to go out to the car and click it off? Make sure you're awake and look in your car because you don't know what might be setting the alarms off. And don't leave your picnic basket in there either. Yes. By all means, do not leave your picnic basket in there. So uh, Bears in Virginia... Oh, my. Uh, How about a plastic bat used to defend a son from a goose? Is that legal, do you think? Oh, yeah. If a goose attacks you in Indianapolis, should you be able to defend yourself with a plastic bat? Absolutely. I agree. But uh, apparently, no. Uh, Indianapolis man says he shouldn't have been ticketed for using a plastic bat to protect his four-year-old son from an aggressive Canadian goose. Those Canadians... Uh, James McDaniel says the goose came across the field and chased his son, so he struck it in the head with a bat. McDaniel said the goose was clearly attacking the boy and he was doing what he could to protect him. Animal Services ticketed McDaniel for animal cruelty. An incident report says witnesses reported that McDaniel hit the bird three times. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources said people are allowed to protect themselves or others from wildlife but may only use reasonable amount of force. Oh, ah. Audio from, ah, three times. That was three times. See, wouldn't it have been worse had he used his foot or yeah. his fist? Well, and apparently, I guess you're allowed to do it once. But I'm telling you, if you haven't ever had a goose attack you, you, you don't know what this guy's gone through. This is traumatic. Anytime you have a wild animal, you know, after you, scary. So would you rather have a goose attack you or a bear in your car? A goose attacked me any day. Oh, ah, boy! Violence on the Matt Townsend show. We'll take a break, my friends. We'll be back, continuing the journey. Stick with us, helping you be the good in the world.
1: Welcome to the Wheatley Minute.
0: This is the Matt Townsend show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at one eight five five Chat BYU.
1: This is
2: the Matt Townsend show.
0: Dr. Matt Townsend now on BYU Radio.
2: BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the show. This is a program where we give you the latest, greatest research information, just whatever we can find to help everybody figure out how to have a better life. Uh, whether it's, you know, poverty, which we will be talking about in hour number one of the show today, or leadership, you name it. We talk health, we talk uh, relationships, family, parenting, we give you some empty news, some news that doesn't even really matter to There's you. There's a new Spider-Man trailer. Like that, for See? example. Another Everything. another Spider-Man trailer,
4: which is exactly what this world needs. The third Spider-Man trailer. Really? The movie comes out soon. They're just kind of well, ramping up expectations. Haven't have, We've already had Spider-Man. Not the cool one. Oh, really? We've had the Spider-Man that the uh, the Sony company has tried to uh, destroy. Over and over and over again.
1: Yeah. And then the other Spider-Man that the Sony company continued to destroy yes. over and over. Right. That's and a lot of now, Spider-Mans.
4: And now Marvel has taken their product, okay. their, their baby, Spider-Man, and they're presenting him in his truest form. Okay. He, okay. And his suit is like made by Iron Man, so what are you going to do? Oh, Tony, really? Tony Stark made his suit, so he's got all these toys. It's kind of fun. Oh, interesting. Boy, to think
2: I'm missing all of this. You are. I gotta get. I gotta get on it. I'm just having too much fun watching Trump at the Vatican. What's he doing? Just it, walking around the big halls. Is it
4: awkward? It's kind of awkward. Is he looking at it like I could do this in my penthouse? He's. Probably, or, I did do this in my like, penthouse. Yeah, my my. I have more gold in my penthouse. <laughs> it's like this. this is really low rent. What's he doing here? This is the the Pope. What's he doing? It's really. Interesting. He's mismanaging his funds. Isn't it amazing,
2: Donald Trump? Whatever you think about the guy, he he is the president of the United States. And is now sitting with the Pope. Yeah. Whatever you think about the guy, he won the race, he's outrunning the investigations, and he's now meeting with the Pope. I mean, it's unbelievable. Donald Trump, you're fired. Same guy. Oh, there's people that wake up every day. Same guy. They they look in the mirror and say this. Apparently the Pope is um, asking Trump to be a peacemaker. Hmm. Like, let's try that. Right. Let's try peace. We haven't tried that ever. Let's try it. So he's had, he's been very busy from being slapped by Melania in the hand mm-hmm. to the Arab meetings that the, were— the, the glowing orb thing. The glowing orb. I'm not sure what that was. To or, the Western Wall, right? the first flight from Riyadh to Israel. Right. And
4: uh, now— Rome. And as I, as I read this morning, his schedule's been packed on purpose to keep him from, you know, tweeting. Yeah. <laughs> they keep handing him food. So his hands are always busy. So Here, he, here don't look at your phone. Here, here you go. Try this. Try a Big Mac. He hasn't watched the morning news. That's good. Which is
2: kind of kept him See, this him is a great model for him. If we just right. kept him abroad and kept moving him around.
4: He wouldn't just, get in trouble. Should he tweeting. just be on, like, constant trips? Yeah. His airplane never lands.
2: But that's what you do with your kids, right? Like, when it's in summer, you know you got to keep your kids busy or, you know, someone's going to burn the house down. Right. Not a bad idea. See, that's why, that's why we do the show, to give the ideas that others don't know they need. <laughs> we'll get to all that fun. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, the poor, rethinking dependency, and the war on poverty. Some uh, interesting solutions, including... The number one solution to ending poverty, how about jobs? Huh. That's a novel idea. It's a weird start, but get the people employed. Get them doing what they can do. now. Oh, I know, but they've got disabilities. Great, great, great. But disabled people work. Mm -hmm. And so get them jobs where disabled people can work. Get them jobs where mental health uh, can be covered. Get them jobs where family matters can be dealt with, where they might have you know, child care.
4: Some of this feels like we're just trying to finish kind of the circle, like we're we're giving them support. We're giving them food and help that way, but we're not coming around and helping them get out of the need for all of those things. And the problem is we don't have jobs. So we keep trying
2: to impact poverty by taking care of every other issue, every secondary tertiary issue, except for the issue of a job. So our guest today is going to be talking about we need jobs. Uh, we'll get into that uh, fun topic. Plus, of course, uh, headlines with Terry South in a bit. Jeff's out today. Cole's filling in for Jeffrey on the board. And um, what? Uh, oh, and then we're gonna do a little empty news, of course. As we go through the day So stick with us on that Let's get to the headlines Terry what's going on Around the rest of the country
4: A California woman Was arrested on Tuesday On federal charges Of conspiring To procure And illegally export Sensitive space Communications technology To her native China This according To the U.S. Justice Department C. Chen, also known as Kathy Chen, 32, could face prison term of 150 years if convicted of all charges. They'll probably cut that down a bit. 150 years seems a bit extreme. (laughs) Just looking at the, you know, average human lifespan. Uh, 14-count indictment returned by a grand jury in April. Specifically, the indictment alleges that she purchased and smuggled sensitive materials to China without obtaining required export licenses, including components commonly used in military communications referred to as Jammers! Jammers! Is she also accused of smuggling devices typically used in space communication applications? Really? So, high tech. She's in trouble. Out the, out the country. A team of researchers working to perfect 3D printing printed ovaries for infertile women have successfully tested their creation on mice. The mice whose real ovaries were surgically replaced with 3D printed uh, variety successfully uh, conceived, gave birth to healthy pups. Okay. No, yeah, go ahead.
2: Go ahead. Go ahead. So- you, so somebody just says, hey, I'm going to print me up some ovaries. Yeah. Then they, I guess, just go to their Canon printer. Well, you know,
4: medi- you have to their like, medical a, a medical situation Printer. Here. Let's be in a hospital. And then yeah. they
2: print up some ovaries, and now they're proving that,
4: that you can actually do that with rats. With mice. Mice. Mice pups. So the lab-created ovaries even triggered lactation. <gasps> That's amazing. Yeah, so 3D-printed organs have been made before. However, these new ovaries created by a team from Northwestern University are the first to be made with a 3D-printed gelatin scaffolding. Perfecting wow. the scaffolding has proven difficult. The structure said it has to be durable enough to hold together through the implantation procedure and carry the eggs, but also porous enough to function. Yeah, so you going got to release the eggs, right? Sturdy yet porous. The it's got goal, to then be implanted. The end goal is to create a bioprosthetic ovary that can be used by That's women great. rendered infertile by from diseases like cancer or their other medical treatments. Uh, human trials are likely years away. But I, I mean, mean, imagine think about all of a sudden you could be curing infertility in some. Yeah. That's cool. My wife stopped it. she goes, I don't want mouse ovaries. No, you'll have your ovaries.
2: You're missing the point. But then but they'll, you'll get to design them. You'll have like designer ovaries. Yeah, maybe
4: bejewel them up a little yeah. bit. Yeah, sweet. I Some thought many, the
5: big
2: news there was that baby mice are actually
4: pups. Yeah, I, yeah, I official. It's, it's, I call okay. them pups. I'm not sure if that—that's what the article said. It kind of threw me for a loop. For nearly 10 years, O.J. Simpson has called Nevada's Lovelock Correctional Center home. The Reno Gazette Journal reports in July. However, Simpson may get a present just as his 70th birthday rolls around depending on the results of a parole hearing the state department of corrections has announced that uh, they'll take place that month the hearing date will be scheduled in mid-june it will be streamed live so if you want to watch it, uh, it on tv i'm busy that simpson day. has been serving a 9 to 33 year sentence at the prison since december 2028 2008 after being convicted of, for kidnapping Armed robbery, among other charges, after a 20, 2007 sports memorabilia hotel room heist. He broke, he got into someone's yeah. hotel room, held him captive, accused him of stealing his memorabilia or something, and then he got arrested and thrown in jail. So, in other words, he could be uh, possibly released from jail. And uh, there's a lot of movies he needs to watch. That's right. About himself. If Simpson is granted parole, he still will have to wait till October before he's a free man. Nevada's parole hearings usually come months before the release date. In the meantime, the spokeswoman says officials will have to prepare for protests if Simpson is granted parole because they expect a big public outcry. Wow. Because people feel like he got away with murder, literally. (laughs) And now yeah. this is how he's serving his time is because of this whole right. other sports memorabilia. But now thing. he's out. Not necessarily. He's what? in parole. He could have a parole hearing coming up here in uh, you know the next few months. And but, then we could watch it live during the show. Because you know court hearings are just riveting. But there was nothing more riveting than the Simpson trial. But this isn't the Simpson trial. This, this is would be a, the Simpson
2: retrial. This is a
4: seventy year old man walking in and apparently he's a model model prisoner
2: really does what he's told he's like in the mo he's like
4: he yeah he models the yeah. the behaviors the wardrobe here's my new jumpsuit it's probably <laughs> blue or maybe orange striped and finally an oregon family got quite a scare on may 12th when their three-year-old daughter got fussy around bedtime and had trouble standing lance and amanda lewis ended up taking evelyn to uh, the er panicked when the, by the next morning she could barely even crawl or use her arms. What? Lance Lewis tells CNN that he has a, a history of a rare type of brain cancer typically found in kids and his symptoms and the symptoms were similar. So our minds started going to that. So the parents started thinking, is it a brain tumor? Or what's going on here? They were relieved, but also alarmed to discover the true cause of Evelyn's temporary partial paralysis was a tick bite. Uh. This condition is called tick paralysis. It can be fatal. I'm glad we took her in when we did and that it it wasn't something worse. A doctor at the ER found a dog tick attached to Evelyn's head and removed it. Even though dog ticks don't cause Lyme disease, they can cause tick paralysis, which is a result of a toxin in the insect's saliva. Symptoms typically improve after the tick is removed. In Evelyn's case, she was fine by the next day. That is scary. I have people that I know that have been bit by
2: a tick bitten Hmm. who done bitten bit (laughs) by a tick and um i mean it it took him out for six months Mm -hmm. like they thought they thought they had like multiple sclerosis they had all of these other things lyme's disease It ended up being and destructive yeah ticks so
4: three-year-old little girl this is why you shouldn't camp no i don't think that's the case just you know maybe take some precautions if
2: God wanted people camping... He wouldn't have made ticks. He wouldn't
4: have made ticks. Mm-hmm.
2: And he wouldn't have made
4: these incredible trailers and <laughs> camping units. I do agree with that. You know? I, I do believe a mattress was created for a reason. There was guidance. There was, there was you know, inspiration from on high. Yeah, Sleeping on a rock is not what you're supposed to do with your life. No. You're not. Uh, and every time I camp, there's a rock. Even when I sort of like, you know, check the, land, the ground out, make sure there's no... There's a rock. There's a rock well, right in the or, center of my back. Or like a slant. Like you're on a little tiny hill
2: that you didn't recognize when you were putting yeah. your bed down. And then you wake up in the corner of your tent on top of your <laughs> child smothering, smothering your son. Co-sleeping. Ah, oh, it's a good time. Uh, plus the other thing is all the vermin, all the, the crazy animals out there. Mm-hmm. A wayward, did you hear about the wayward raccoon, is now to blame for a power
4: outage that left thousands of central Florida
2: residents in the dark.
4: Aren't we we kind of prejudging the raccoon by calling him wayward? No. He's masked. Well, he's a raccoon. We know he has a mask. And he has those little hands. Okay. And he's got
2: those shifty eyes. Yeah. Way shifty. In Kissimmee, the Kissimmee Utility Authority reports that the raccoon climbed onto a 13,200-volt piece of equipment Hmm. at the utility's airport substation around uh, midnight on Tuesday, causing three primary feeder lines to fail. The substation, one of 10 serving Kissimmee. The Kissimmee area... Um, Kissimmee. Is it Kissimmee? I do believe so. Kissimmee uh, area is located, uh, anyway, off of Hoagland Boulevard, if you know where that is. Here's the deal, though. 70,000 customers oh, wow.
4: lost power. I saw something over the weekend that there was a large power outage. Yeah, you won't believe this. Sadly, the raccoon did not survive. No way. Yeah. For Kiseed?
2: Yeah, fricassee. <laughs> Apparently 13,200 volts of electricity.
4: Too much for it. I worked at a radio station. We were on the air just going live, no problem. And the uh, transmitter went out. Uh, now, you don't know in the studio. You don't know that, why it went out. But someone came in to me and they go, did you guys realize you're not broadcasting? And I look around at some of the monitoring equipment. And I'm like, oh, wait, I guess we're down. And I didn't tell the hosts. They kept talking well, yeah, for you like never an tell hour and a half. But the uh, engineer went out to the site and... And there was like a mallard duck that had crawled into the, the shed where yeah. the power system was. And it bit the, for whatever reason, bit the power line. And there was a fried duck. Mm, so I love So I was duck. like, wow, what does that smell like? And he goes, you don't want to know. <laughs> it's one thing to actually prepare and cook a, a meal. A it's another thing to have feathers and all the <laughs> Darn it. extra... Parts of a duck. So yeah, the duck went in and this got got himself into a, a situation to knock the radio station off. The Why head. did you let the host keep talking? What well, was I, if I told them otherwise, they'd get mad and just sit around and stew. So I just let them keep the show going. Well, I know, but I would be I would be so mad at you. Well, they flipped it over to a backup transmitter. Oh, okay. So I mean, within like fifteen minutes, we were back live. But okay, I yeah. just they they were just talking, so I just let them go. <laughs>
1: I know Jeffrey. I'm sure there's times where he just turns off your mic. And no, doesn't totally. tell you.
4: That's why he's not yeah. here today. Ho- hosts need to be coddled at sometimes, yeah, but I'm not big on coddling, so I just kind of mm-hmm. let them sit. In the Yo, room you and- let us just keep working. Yeah, even though it's it's
2: not even going anywhere. <sighs> don't don't focus on the small stuff. Yeah, it seems like a big thing to me. <laughs> seems like it. Now I've got to watch the board to make sure. Are we going? Are we really live now? Are we live? Ah, okay. So uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're talking about uh, Poor No More. It's a book out, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. Really, you know, there's a million solutions to the issues of poverty, right? But really, it seems like there's one solution that might do the most good, and that's jobs. Stick with us. We're talking poverty up next. Welcome back, everybody. You know, in the 1960s, America set out to end poverty. All the initiatives on the war against poverty have since failed, except one, the welfare reform in 1996. What made this reform different from all of the others? Here to speak with us today is Peter Cove. Uh, uh, He's the author of Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty and the founder of American Works. The name of his book is "Poor No More, uh, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. And Peter, we're, we're grateful to have you here. Thanks for your time.
7: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: You bet. This is such a an interesting topic to me because so since the 60s, we've had a war against poverty. But it, it it hasn't done much. It doesn't seem like. And um, as the more of your information and, and your book that I read, I, I realize we may be you know barking up the wrong tree.
7: Well, as I say, in the war on poverty, poverty won. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I recognized this uh, late in my career. I mean, I've been involved since 1965, working when the when the when the uh, Program that Lyndon Johnson proposed was uh, established by Congress to uh, to basically alleviate all poverty in the United States And we really believed that was going to happen And I realized late in my career that um, not only had it not happened But that we had uh, not moved the needle at all and In 1965 uh, the poverty rate was about 15.5% when I started writing my book Poor No More uh, it was about fifteen point one percent, but we had spent over twenty-two trillion dollars—not billion, twenty-two trillion dollars. Wow! And I said to I said to myself, "Wait, there's something really wrong with this picture." It was kind of a mea culpa moment for me because I had been involved, and I, you know, I ran programs, I evaluated them, uh, and 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 I designed them, and some of them did work, but overall, uh, the the programs we established uh, at the beginning. Uh, Uh, of the war on poverty in 65 just didn't work and spent 22, more than 22 trillion dollars. So that got me to write this book. Is it because we've
2: it it doesn't mean we didn't create a lot of great ideas, right? I mean, there was a lot of good we were trying to do, you know, um, taking care of daycare, taking care of, uh, you know different methods of um, mental health and other things, housing, but none of those really seem to answer what you call basically the number one issue, which is jobs. Poor uh, the yeah, exactly. impoverished it, need work.
7: Exactly, and that's what the um, what, the, as you indicated the, at the beginning of this uh, this show, the the welfare reform of '96, which we were very much a part of. Um, uh, my company, America Works, and uh, my wife, uh, Dr. Lee Bose, who's the CEO now of the company, we worked with the White House to say, listen, education and training doesn't work well as a first strike in trying to w- reduce the welfare rolls because we've tried that, and, and it doesn't work. What works is moving people into jobs and then using hmm. the education and training to move them up. Um, and I used to argue with Senator Monaghan about this, because he would just Say no, no education, training—that's important. You got to give them these, so they get great jobs. And we would—we'd say no, it doesn't work. And you know, we weren't coming as he was from an academic perspective. He was a, had been a professor. He was in a uh, PhD. Uh, but I'm not sure how much he dealt with poor people. Right. Uh, we dealt every day, every day with poor people. And what we knew is, number one, they wanted to work. Number two, they could work. And number three it was the best way to move them from dependency to independence. And one day, I walked into his office and his chief of staff. Uh, Said, well, called you're right, and I'm like, what? I didn't even know what he was talking (laughs) about. He said, well, there's research has come out and it says work first works better than just putting people into a classroom. But we knew that from experience. And what happened with uh, with the um, with welfare reforms in uh, in uh, '96 was it changed from classroom education and training to work first. And you know what happened? Within ten years. The welfare rolls were reduced by 60 percent in the United States mm. they had been going up every decade. And within 10 years, and it wasn't a coincidence, coincidence they went down by 60 percent. It's because we got people working.
2: Amazing. So is it has it been like the political poll? Because there is a difference between how like progressives look at it, like you're talking about, versus the conservatives. It seems like the conservatives think nobody, you know, everybody that's on the welfare rolls, none of them want to work. Um, that the liberals might think they just can't work. There's, there's all these difficult issues as to why they can't work. So has it, is it just our politic has been off and then we've been divisive in the politics? Or what was it?
7: Yeah, you put it very well. I often say that it's amazing that we got welfare reform just because of what you said. Uh, the Republicans didn't believe they wanted to work and the, and the Democrats didn't believe they could work. And so w- 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 the fact we got work as the major part of welfare reform to me is still a miracle yeah uh, but but it is political, yes, it is um there's a there's a desire on the part well, let me put it this way: there are people on on the right and who are who are Republicans who really do believe that people want to work. I remember when Rudy Giuliani came to visit my company, America Works in New York uh, before he became mayor about a year and a half, he went into a classroom with uh, welfare recipients, and he came out and he said, well, Peter, they really do want to work, don't they? It really surprised him. And if you ask Paul Ryan, he will tell you, I believe they want to work. And if you ask Peter Cove, he'll say, We've, America Works has placed over a million people in jobs around the United States, all over, all of them people who were very dependent on government uh, beforehand. These people want to work. It's the government that gets in the way, and we can talk about that at some point. Yeah. But uh, but yes, the, uh, I, the, there, is, there, is a, there is a political disincentive, and I can give you an anecdote if you want to hear it Yeah, one. please, yeah. Uh, about 20 years ago, a woman who ran the uh, state committee that oversaw welfare in, the, in New York came to visit our company. And she looked at our company in Manhattan, which uh, was Welfare to Work, and I said, well, what do you think of it? She said, I think it's the best welfare-to-work program I've ever seen and i said are you going to support it she said no uh, and i said why she said because down the street from my campaign office uh, there's a small little program that runs welfare to work it, it it is smaller than yours peter and it's not as good but on election day they bring out the votes
2: oh wow yeah and that's, that's true that's what goes on yeah
7: that's what goes on it's what i call the welfare industrial complex
2: it's interesting all politics is local right so
7: that's it you got it you got it it is local and and you, it, these politicians are giving out contracts to organizations, uh, even if – and this woman was a liberal do-gooder, uh, and she came in to, to really help poor people and, and, and yeah. others.
2: and, and she, she saw the good.
7: Will, she was more than willing to sell them out in order to get reelected.
2: I mean, I guess that's the other side of this, right, is – I mean, we're not necessarily making decisions for the long haul and for the entire diverse country – we're making the decisions really precinct by precinct, barrio by barrio, and it's not – I guess at some point it just doesn't it doesn't produce better long-term answers. I mean one of the things I love about a lot of the stuff I'm reading with your your organization is – I mean, if, for example, Trump comes out and now he wants to impose work requirements on food stamp users, um, and, and it creates all this backlash, except one of the things that's amazing to me is – if we could get everybody that's on the welfare rolls working, um, then go back, retool them, reteach them, retrain them, get them everything they need to be where they want to be. Um, do you sense that that's a real answer? And do you sense that Trump, uh, his idea of you know imposing work requirements on food stamp users, is that is that trying to get more to where you're going, or is that a whole other well, issue? First
7: of all, first of all, it happens to be the law of the land. The 1996 uh, welfare reform says that if someone is on food stamps and is able-bodied and there is a job, they should go to work. So wanting to do this is only imposing something that already Hmm. was diluted. I mean, the the Obama administration came into New York and told us that we could not place people who are on food stamps into jobs, even though we had been doing it for years and they wanted to go to work. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it it that part of it is very political. It's very do good. There should be, I mean, somehow work became a four-letter word yeah. to the left.
2: Right. And then where did that happen? I'm sorry? How, how did that happen? Because, you know, it's, it's, it's part of our country. This is how you make things happen. It's almost, it, is it just enabling behavior? What is it?
7: Yes yeah, there's been a, there's been a growing uh, support uh, from the left of dependency in this country uh, and I can t- tell you a lot about that when it comes to disability and SSDI uh, we're putting people onto disability roles using disability roles as as welfare as, as, as unemployment compensation. Um, now I'm not saying there aren't people who are disabled of course there are. But yeah. we, esti- we estimate at our company, we place people on, off the disability roles into inter- jobs. We estimate 30 to 40 percent of the people on disability either can work from home or go to work. And and yet w- w- there's no interest on the part of anyone, there seems, to put any work requirements into people who are on disability. Hmm. Uh, you could do it. You could do it humanely and fairly. Yeah, you don't have to be um, cold. No, not at all. You know, the problem with, with, uh, with politics in terms of how it gets uh, articulated, uh, and Arthur Brooks at the American Enterprise Institute has written about this, uh, people on the right uh, speak in terms of logic and figures and, and research, and people on the left speak in terms of being kind and gentle and compassionate. That always wins the argument, regardless mm. of what the facts are on the other side.
2: It's true. I, even even as we talk about it, every time I say something like, yeah, we got to work, I, I would sometimes think in the back of my head, man, am I just being, you know, am I just being rude, like a, un, misunderstanding all of their pain that the disabled might be suffering with? But as you're saying, 30 to 40 percent of the disabled can work and and actually would probably feel better they working right and exactly
7: work. yeah i mean it, it, you're not being rude what you know I, what i would say to anybody like that is when's the last time you talk to a poor person right when's the last time you talk to a disabled person about work you know and unless and, and again you know i'm not an academic i'm somebody that uh, when i get off this show i'll be going to my office in manhattan
2: <laughs> and getting and jobs people, for people
7: and getting good and exactly these are poor people coming in and we're getting them jobs so I think I know what goes on. Right. Uh, the politics. The politics is a whole other thing.
2: One of the things that you are suggesting is a model where you ensure jobs for everyone who is able. And um, so, how do you do that? Are there enough jobs? How would we ensure jobs for everybody on uh, these on the welfare records?
7: Well, yes, my, that's my able. proposal. In, yeah, my proposal in my book uh, is simply this. Uh, and I say simply uh, to ex- execute it would not be so simple. But the, here's the proposal: uh, that we get we get rid of all welfare programs except for people who mentally or physically really can't go to work, hmm. so there'd be a safety net for those people. Yeah. We get rid of all poverty programs because, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh... we spent over 22 trillion dollars and it hasn't worked. And we take all that money, and it's an awful lot of money, and we convert it into first creating jobs in the private sector. And if there were not enough, this answers your question, I hope um, the, uh, in the public sector, like WPA and others, so that uh, if a, a young woman has a baby and comes to the government and says, "I want money," we say no, but we got a job in daycare for you hmm. isn't that what I mean' that, that's what, there that you go. Is what that woman wants that 's what that woman wants. believe me, I mean sure, there are some bums out there, and I have some friends who are bums, but basically, people want to work. My proposal takes existing money that 's going to keep people home and puts them to work.
2: Mm, Love it. Let's take a break. Uh, We're speaking with Peter Cove from America Works, and he is walking us through um, how we can put America back to work, first and foremost, and by doing so, end poverty, rethinking dependency and the war on poverty. His book is Poor No More, and you can find out more information about the work they're doing at AmericaWorks.com. The war on poverty, folks. $22 trillion spent, and so far, poverty's winning. We will take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us is Peter Cove. Uh, He is the author of Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. And uh, Peter, um, if you go to his website, you can can really connect into what they're doing on the ground level, AmericaWorks.com and uh, doing everything they can to get America back to work. So far, they have created more than one million jobs for welfare recipients through America Works and other private sector ende- endeavors. And for 50 years, he has been on the forefront of mitigating poverty by promoting jobs as a solution to welfare dependency. Thank you again for being with us, Peter. My pleasure. Um, this, again, it's it's almost like we, we you if you're telling poor people to work, Um, you some would feel like, oh man, I'm just being I'm just being so insensitive. I don't seem to understand their plight. But what gives me hope about this, Peter, is you're on the front, you know, the front line of this. You're taking this on. And when you bring up statistics like 22 trillion dollars spent on the war on poverty, and poverty continues to win, we we just seem to be missing it. Now, what are the answers? So. What would you, if you could sit down with a President Trump or uh, even with our Congress people, what would you be pushing for?
7: Well, the first thing I would do is something that uh, uh, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, uh, said to me when he came to visit our company in Milwaukee about seven, eight months ago. He said he was going to try to institute work requirements for all welfare programs, including, as you mentioned earlier, food stamps, Medicaid, et cetera. Uh, that would be the first thing, that we should have work requirements. That is something that, uh, that uh, President Clinton uh, established, which was um, uh, a reciprocal responsibility. If you're receiving something from the government and you are able-bodied, you should be giving back. And the way to give back is to work. And I would be suggesting to anybody listening to this program that they should talk to their congressmen they should talk they should talk with Washington where they can senators and and follow um paul ryan 's lead on this issue, which is let's get people working and this you know the people that tell you that it's a bad thing are paying the bill yeah. I, I don't know if it occurs to them that it's their taxes that are keeping people working at home. what I'm suggesting is taking again all the money we're spending on keep, keeping people at home. And using it to create the job so that they can go earn a paycheck and pay taxes and feel good about themselves.
2: It's so true. But, you
7: know, there's, there's something more about work. Um, in 19, I think it was 83 or 82, Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical. Uh, I'm Jewish, so you got to understand. <laughs> I, I, I'm reading. That's Catholic great. You're reading literally. out of your out of your yeah, area. Out of, yeah, out of my comfort out of my comfort zone, and. Uh, uh, he wrote an encyclical on uh, on on work and the importance of work and i'm going to paraphrase a little, but what he said was that the de- depriving a person of work deprives them of part of their spirituality hmm. and it and it's really true work gives you a sense of who you are where you where you are in the cosmos what is important uh, in, your children and your spouse. Uh, all uh, uh, respond to that positively. Uh, So it's not just money. Uh, It also has to do with human worth. And I think we have, and again, when you have people who say, well, you're being very mean and the idea that people should go to work, I mean, you can hit them with, well, you're paying the taxes and you're going to work. How do you feel about that? You can say also, it means something significant to have work and that that's what we want for people in our country. Right.
2: Well, and there's behind... Behind it is another paradigm, right? So if if I assume and everybody that's on disability can't work, then that then I'm actually demeaning your worth. I'm putting you down where you're saying 30 to 40 percent actually can and want to and can work from home if they needed to or want to work. Um, but I'm acting like and I'm creating situations and conditions where you don't have to work, that's demeaning to you. Like you're not worth even working.
7: Yeah, I I really have seen over my more than 50 years working with uh, programs uh, that have tried to help uh, poor people that there's been this increasing uh, disincentive and and lack of incentive by the government to get people working, and you know it, it, there's a there's a hue and cry that just we have a very low work participation rate. It's gone down in this country. A lot of that has to do with our government's policies that allow people to become dependent and to stay dependent, and we have to look at that because, uh, again, some people will say, "Well, they're all lazy." Well, it just isn't true. Right. What's true? What What's true is they're making some rational decisions based upon government policy. If mm-hmm. you change the policy and say, "Well, we're going okay, what Cove just said. Let's make and what and what Ryan said. Let's uh, let's have work requirements for all programs uh, that are welfare programs. Then you and and the people being able bodied, then you change the dynamic significantly.
2: Does the government I mean, like you were saying, if you took everybody off of uh, welfare and and eliminated a lot of benefits um, and instead put every put all that money into work projects, are are you are you suggesting that maybe we need kind of a civilian conservation corps? Do we need a New Deal type of mentality? Do we need to to create, you know, more public works? Uh,
7: yes. I, I don't know what number that's going to be, but as I suggest, first, we uh, establish the jobs in the private sector, and America Works has done that uh, through a number of programs. And second, if there aren't enough jobs, that we create the WPA public service type jobs, uh, uh, infrastructure jobs, that will absorb the people who just can't at that moment Get into uh, the uh, private uh, sector, Uh, and yes, I think we should have that. I think it's important, but I want to see first the the attempts be made to create those jobs in the uh, in the private sector. But you know, we just seem to have politicians uh, that are stuck on stupid. I mean, (laughs) they just don't they just don't want want to change from where they are. Um, Saul Bellow, the the great novelist, once said, "A great deal of intelligence can be invested." In ignorance when the need for illusion is deep, And that's what goes on. There's this deep need to believe something that really doesn't exist. People don't want to work, they can't work, all of that. Um, and, it, and it has to do with politics. It has to do with ideology. Um, we've got to change that in this country.
2: What about because um, I know you you work in a lot of the bigger cities and the bigger states, uh, the more populated areas, but you're also in Wisconsin. What about like the Midwest in some of these smaller states where unemployment is also high and yet, you know, they may not be having a big infrastructure deal or there may not be the jobs there? I guess that's one of the reasons why the private sector might be so important.
7: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, uh job creation is is an area that I don't know a lot about it, 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 it what I can say is this in areas where the jobs don't exist that is where I would suggest putting in public works types jobs so that people can mm. go to work uh, but but yeah I mean if you've got a situation where where unemployment is high and the jobs aren't there then you need to find an alternative and to me the alternative is to set up the jobs for people to be able to go to work. And um, I, I hope we do that in this country because I don't think people, again, want to sit home and, and, and just collect a check.
2: Well, and, and it seems like, too, we, we somehow need to get our politicians uh, doing more than trying to be reelected. I mean, it's almost like there, there's got to be some accountability for a result Two twenty two trillion twenty two trillion dollars of limited results. Um, it, it's not a good it's not a good report card.
7: No, one thing that America Works has done to help change that equation is that we have got government in certain municipalities, including New York, to only pay organizations that are trying to put people into jobs for their performance, not paying them for their program or their process, so that uh, we only get paid at America Works if we place someone a job in a job and they stay in a job for mm-hmm. a period three months, six months, or whatever. Before we made government do that, uh they just paid for the programs and if they didn't work the the joke in my business was if the program doesn't work, double the funding. <laughs> and 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 this what we've put into place and in New York City, um, the present mayor uh and, and other and and our previous mayors have performance based contracts that really do allow the government to pay for things that get delivered, not just for well meaning and well intentioned programs. And that does change the equation because then politicians can't just support organizations that are getting them the votes.
2: Yeah, that's good. And then I guess, too, those that for the people that really can't work, we still have safety nets. We still have other devices and, and means, but uh, everyone else needs to get get in the game.
7: Yeah. And I call for that in my proposals that that and in, in, in in I uh, budget for that. So that there will be money for people who can't go to work because they physically and mentally can't go to work. But otherwise, I want to see people working.
2: I do, too. Good stuff. Well, we appreciate you, Peter. Keep up the great work there at AmericaWorks.com. And everybody go check out the book, Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. It's much more complicated, isn't it, than just, uh, you know, these people don't want to work and or they can't work. They do. The majority will and would. Um, they just need jobs. And we, and we got to get them in the jobs as fast as we can. All the other solutions are wonderful if there's jobs. If there's no jobs, then um, we're, just, we're just pretending, aren't we? Just digging holes for no reason. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll do a little Coach's Corner with you. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
1: Because life doesn't come with
2: a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, friends. You know, again, we've we've uh, had a couple uh, discussions over this last few days about poverty. And remember, yesterday we talked about um, how our brains, when you are poor, it creates stress, and stress then has you generally working out of a part of your brain called the amygdala, the fight or flight part of your brain, which isn't necessarily your highest reasoning. It's not your best executive kind of functioning brain. It's just survival brain. And when we're in the survival brain, we don't always make the best decisions. We don't always think big picture. We don't always solve the problems and and they tend to stick around. So the same is true when we think about the war on poverty. Maybe what we're doing is we're approaching it from our more reactive tendencies, our more reactive feelings. One of the things I love about um, the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the the LDS Church, that, um, you know, is the, the sponsor really in the end of this show because of Brigham Young University, is they're really amazing as a church at getting people off of welfare and a job and getting them back into the world. And they have... They they have – your church leader will come, your l- religious leader will come and meet with you, assess and find out why you are s- struggling in poverty. The church will even help to some degree to get you back on your feet. We have jobs programs. We have um, – we, we just have a lot of ways to help people back on their feet. But the idea is at some point you want to be self-reliant. And I believe in every single human being in every heart – is a desire, a drive to be self-reliant, to be able to make it on their own. But then if we're stuck in poverty and we're not making the best decisions and we're caught up in that reactive fight or flight brain, we, we start spinning and we need somebody, something that can help maybe hold on to us and stop us from spinning, get us in a place where we can start succeeding. And once we start getting traction, then we can start making better decisions, making better turns. It's like when your wheels are stuck in the snow and you're spinning, until you get the traction, more acceleration doesn't get you out necessarily. It just gets you deeper in the hole. So we need to get the people that are struggling in poverty some traction, and we need to get them some guidance, some a guide literally on their side that can get them into a job and and start giving them – and we always think, let's train them first. Let's give them the skills. Okay, but again, skills without a job isn't going to help you. If I have all the skills in the world and I'm, I'm in North Dakota and there's not a job for me in North Dakota, then my skills won't help me. If I have daycare and I'm in Oklahoma but I don't have a job, the daycare is not going to help me. Well, yeah, but that will help you go get a job. Well, if there's jobs. We've got to work on on some of the other solutions. And so think about you. How are you helping it? How are you handling it? Are you are you involved in helping the people around you to get uh, get a leg up and to get some strength? Are you talking to your politicians about it? Do you have some of the just typical mindsets or biases that we might have that those that are on the welfare rolls? They just don't. They're just lazy. If you believe that. You don't know enough people on welfare. Well, they're just all drug addicted. Not true. Not true. You got to get to know these people. You got to walk a little bit in their shoes and change your way of thinking because when we change our way of thinking, then we wouldn't vote for a politician that's going to just keep enabling people to stay poor, that's going to keep pushing ideas and policies that don't solve or or end Um, some of these, these problems. We've been at it for 60 years and $22 trillion. And it's still beating us down. Crazy stuff, isn't it? Well, let's take a break. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're helping do whatever we can to give you a leg up in life. Stick with us. We'll be back with more.